What's going on, everybody? We're back for episode number 45 of the Real Bodybuilding Podcast. And today I am with two gentlemen who are smarter than myself. One we've seen before on the show, Chris Tuttle. And a new guest we have is Mr. Lane Norton, who has a lot of um, controversial ideas, or maybe not controversial to everybody, but some bodybuilders think maybe aren't. They're not kind of what we do. So I want Unconventional. To unconventional. <laughs> Uncon- yeah. Yeah. Um, but they're interesting nonetheless, because I've, I've read through a lot of your uh, Instagram and it's, it's the interesting part about it is I would like to be able to diet the way you say we can diet. And I would like to be able to do some of the things you say we can do, but something keeps holding us back as bodybuilders. So that's kind of why I wanted to have you on to kind of explain and talk to us about your thoughts on some of the, some of the things we're going to discuss. Sure. Um, Lane, do you want to give us kind of an introduction or credentials for those people who don't know you first? Yeah, sure. Uh, so we were just talking about this, uh, actually bro science versus, uh, science. Uh, so I either describe myself as a meathead who loves science or a nerd who loves lifting heavy shit. Uh, I can curse, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can curse. Good, good. <laughs> otherwise I'd be in trouble. Um, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, I just got into lifting when I was young, got into bodybuilding when I was young, when I was 19, did my first show, uh, competed on and off for about 10 years, um, turned, uh, pro in the drug free organizations, um, coached a lot of people, all that kind of jazz. Um, but did as far as my academic background, I did a, a bachelor's in biochemistry and then I did my PhD in nutritional sciences, um, at university of Illinois. And my specific area of focus was, um, uh, protein metabolism. So that was kind of my, I was very transparent. I wanted to find out how to get as jacked as humanly possible with science. Right. So that was kind of, uh, that was my, uh, my foray into that. And, uh, obviously I've just kept reading research ever since I graduated, didn't go into academia cause just didn't have an interest in that. But, uh, like, like lifting heavy shit, like helping other people lift heavy shit and, uh, helping people improve body composition. So just to give people some uh, background on kind of what some on the surface background, you're 100% natural and have been kind of since you started, correct? I mean, it depends on what you define as natural, right? Some people well, say creatine and protein aren't natural. But okay, I've, well, let's, 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 talk, <laughs> let's be normal people. We're talking. Yeah, no yeah, yeah. So uh, no, I've never taken steroids, uh, no pro hormones, no growth hormone, no insulin, you know, nothing okay. like that. Um, no judgment against anybody who does. I just look at it as kind of two different sports, right? So, um, you know, I love bodybuilding too. I've been to probably 15 Arnold's, 10 Olympias. You know, I, I I actually was one of the announcers one two years for the Olympia. Love bodybuilding in all forms. That was just something I kind of, you know, just never really felt called to do that. Just Mm -hmm. for one one of the things that impressed me the most was your, uh, powerlifting you're involved in the sport of powerlifting and you actually hold quite a few records, correct? Used to. <laughs> oh, used to. Okay. So, well, it's like track and field, right? They get broken all the time. So, yeah. um, yeah, I, uh, I, I, it's funny. I actually got into powerlifting because, um, you know, as a drug free athlete, it takes a long time to build muscle. I mean, mm-hmm. when I, from when I turned pro to when I competed, I took four years off and I put on about three pounds of stage weight in that time. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, taking that long break when you're, when you're competing regularly, you kind of keep that motivation, that extrinsic motivation because you got to step on stage, mm-hmm. but it can be hard to keep that motivation when you're taking years off between competitions. Right. Yeah. 
So I actually did powerlifting in between my turning pro and doing my first pro shows because I just found that it was easier to stay motivated if I had a, if I had a meet to train for. Right? Yeah, so yeah. I would train my main lifts and then I would fill in, you know, arms and all that kind of stuff with, uh, with extra stuff. Sure. Um, and then after I did my pro shows in 2010, I kind of said, well, you know, I want to really focus on growing my business. I was going to start a family. I'll still do powerlifting, but we'll see, you know, maybe, you know, four or five years again, I'll compete again. And it turns out I was better at powerlifting than I was at bodybuilding. So, yeah, yeah. um, you know, just kind of uh, really sunk my teeth into that. Uh, was fortunate enough to win USAPL nationals twice. Um, for people who aren't familiar in bodybuilding, I compete in the IPF. Uh, the IPF is the yeah. world organization. The USAPL is the, the national organization. The IPF is basically the IPB for powerlifting. Like yeah. they, they are the biggest. Um, they're, they're actually recognized by the International uh, Olympic Committee. And um, yeah, so I, I went to national, I won nationals twice, went to worlds, uh, finished uh, second in my weight class at worlds overall, and set a world squat record at the time, uh, which was uh, in the night, I was in the 93 kilo class, which is 205 pound class, squatted 668 pounds, um, which is 303 kilograms. So mm -hmm. wow. it was, uh, was funny because I was actually the guy, guy with skinny legs at my first at my first few shows that everybody made fun of on the forums. So yeah. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, people, people used to give me shit all the time about my legs. And <laughs> I remember having this inner dialogue, like, oh, what am I going to do? You know, train my ass off. But I'm like, you know what? I'm going to squat 500 pounds for reps because yeah. if I can squat 500 pounds for reps, you know, there may be people out there who squat it for reps and have small legs, but I haven't met any of them yet. So I'm going to do yeah. that. Boom, did, bro, so. did it work? It did. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm never just the way, uh, you know, my muscle insertions are and whatnot. I'm never going to have the most impressive set of legs on stage, but yeah. now like I can, you know, if I stepped on stage, stage lean, mm -hmm. nobody's going to pick me out and be like, Oh, well he doesn't train legs. You know, yeah, yeah. He's got really crappy legs. They're, they're in line now with where mm -hmm. you want them. Um, Chris, just before we go into get into some of the questions I want to get into, how's everything going with you? Your coaching business is taking off and thriving. Yeah. Well. Yeah, everything's great. Luckily, uh, COVID hasn't really affected my business. Um, you know, a lot of my uh, clientele is nutrition-related disease and other aspects of nutrition and health, not just bodybuilding. So when the bodybuilding shows got scrapped, I saw an influx of people wanting to stay on track, keep, uh, you know, lower body, uh, better body composition through the whole lockdown period. So it was, it's been busy. It's been Are busy. you... Uh, sorry, are you getting a lot of people with the whole COVID thing, like trying to, you're trying to help them with boosting their immune system and all that? Are you getting a lot of those kind of clients? Well, I tell them like, you're not going to have a diet that's going to have a super physiological effect on having a immune system that's going to fight off viruses, you know? Yeah. So, like I, I tell them like, hey, you know, eat healthy, try to be, you know, lower your stress during a most stressful time ever <laughs> yeah, yeah. and exercise. But it's, you know, some people have a, false idea of what a nutrition plan is going to give them. Um, but more or less, I try to get them to focus on something that's going to be sustainable. Yeah. And that way, that way when everything's over, the lockdown's done and they're back to work, they look great. They feel great. And they're hitting the ground. Running. You know what, since we touched on that, I just want to ask you guys both. And, and I don't know whoever wants to field it first, but I've noticed uh, Lane, I don't know if you know, but I started my own supplement company about three months ago. So I paid a lot of attention to what supplement companies are doing now. And I've noticed a lot of COVID immune system supplements have been coming out. Is there any point to any of these things? Whoever wants to go first. Go ahead, Lane. <laughs> Chris can tell I'm loaded up, ready to go. Um, 
I actually was disgusted by a lot of the shit in the supplement industry. I mean, I'm usually disgusted by quite a bit of stuff, but that yeah. was really disgusting that, I mean, basically these companies were t- like when COVID hit and the lockdown started, I mean, you saw every company and their mother coming out with immune boosting supplements. And, I'm, yeah. you know, I don't have, like, there are some supplements out there that do seem to have a positive impact on immune function. Yeah. So I, I want to just be clear. My problem was with how they were marketed, right? Right. So yeah. you, people were basically, here's the problem. You have to, when you're going to do stuff like this, you got to put it in context. It's just like saying, hey, um, this adjunct treatment showed help for people with tumors, right? Mm-hmm. You may say that, but that's not how they say it. They say, this produces tumor size by this. What people hear is, oh, I don't need to do chemo, right? Oh, I see. Yeah. So, same thing with immune boosters, what people will do, and this happened, I saw this a lot with the carnivore movement too, that these people were convinced that they were protected from COVID because of their diet for whatever mm-hmm. reason, yeah. even though dietary fiber is like one of the biggest um, uh, prebiotics and booster and immune boosters there is. Um, so what happens is those people engage in riskier behaviors. So I actually did a, a video where I talked about this. I'm like, hey, here are the things that really make an impact on your immune system. And it's kind of like building a 600 pound squat, right? Yeah. You don't walk in the gym and be like, well, you know what? I'm getting serious about my squat. So I'm going to build, I'm going to boost my squat up to 600 pounds, right? Yeah. No, you do that through a long period of time and your immune system is very similar, right? You don't build that overnight. It takes time. And the stuff Chris said is mostly it. Like don't eat like an asshole, train. Um, you don't have to train like a body, but you know, train exercise regularly. Uh, get enough sleep, limit your stress, don't smoke, don't drink or limit your drinking, you know, don't get drunk. Um, and you know, that, that shit right there is about 95% of it, you know, but that's not sexy and people can't sell that. So they yeah. sell, you know, boosting something. And but, Lee, that's what you just said too. It's the hardest part sometimes is to display a bit of information about a product or a method and not have people misunderstand or misinterpret what you're sure. You might say, one thing and then they go oh oh okay i can do that every day no no i never said every day you know so uh, yeah i'm with you on that it's like people have this idea that a supplement's going to make their immune system like your body on steroids it doesn't quite work that way so let me let me ask you guys a question as the non-scientist in the group um i didn't know that about my immune system i didn't know that it took time to build it up and make it strong i didn't think it would be like an overnight like you know some people go for example, some people will take those vitamin drips, right? They do the IV vitamin drip thing. I didn't know it could take months for that to boost my immune system. I thought it would be like, you know, a few weeks. And then also combined with eating healthy and, and sleeping and training and all the other things you mentioned. So how long would it take somebody, let's say somebody's got like a shitty lifestyle and they decide they want to change their, have a stronger immune system. How long would it take to do all the things you mentioned plus add supplements or add a vitamin drip or something like that. How long would it take to get their immune system up and to a, a strong point? Well, that's really difficult to say because we're talking yeah. about people with different starting points and, you know, genetics. genetics. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I will say is like, okay, so first preface, I'm not an immunologist and that's not my specialty. So yeah. I'm going to use some knowledge I have about nutrition and what we take to typically see, um, you know, health markers start to improve and juxtapose that. And then if 
somebody who, who is listening is an immune specialist and I'm full of shit, they can, they can tell me. <laughs> you can leave in the comments um, section, yeah. Typically what we see is that, you know, your health markers, if you start like losing weight, um, start dieting, you typically start to see those improve in about, you know, three, four weeks. Like, yeah. especially if you're actually losing some body weight. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like getting back in range, like if, you know, you take somebody who's like my father, my father is pre-diabetic, you know, obese, that sort of thing. Um, he started losing weight within a month. His, his markers were starting to improve. Um, and then after he'd lost about 20, 30 pounds, they were getting down into the normal range. And you, you see that as like, you know, the first with weight loss, like the first 10% body weight you lose, you get almost all the health benefits. Like it's, yeah. it's a big jump. I don't know if immune systems that way, but I would guess it's probably like that, that you're going to, you're going to see some, some relatively quick results. And we see this with training, right? Like you gain 90%. If you're talking about drug free, you gain 90% of the muscle you're ever going to gain probably in the first couple of years of training. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then it's a slow grind after that. Yeah. Immune systems, probably the, probably the same way. I would say you're probably going to get, if you start employing all those major lifestyle improvements, probably within a few months, you're going to, you're going to look a lot different. But okay. the thing that really is important and that people don't talk about, and I actually talked about this in a video is you could do everything right with your immune system. It doesn't mean you're not going to get really fucking sick. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's <laughs> in fact, they've actually seen with COVID some people, in the, 19, in the early 1900s, there was the Spanish flu, which wiped out millions of people around the globe. And it actually kind of targeted healthy people because the one downside to being really healthy and having a really robust immune system. Too clean. What's that? Too clean? <laughs> too clean, wash their hands too much? No, not even that. They have um, a, uh, a cytokine storm, basically. Your immune system is so, because uh, inflammation is part of the immune system's response. Mm. So people can actually have such a robust response that they get like super high fevers. And um, they actually, one of my, um, one of my friends is a uh, head of medicine at Naples General Hospital. And he said, they've actually seen some, some healthy people get really, really sick, you know, not die, but get really sick because they were just, their body basically attacked itself because the immune system was so strong. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the things that, that doesn't get talked about enough is yes, I'm not saying don't build up your immune system. I still think overall that's a good idea live a healthy lifestyle. That's not an excuse to go out and be a pig, yeah. but Hey, try not to get fucking COVID, right? Yeah. Try not yeah. to get sick in the first place. Wash your hands, practice social distancing. I've told everybody, I don't believe in mass hysteria. I don't like I've gone out to dinner, you know, since yeah. Florida reopened all that kind of stuff, but like, just be smart, right? Like take reasonable precautions. This doesn't have to be an impotence on your life. Yeah. So Chris going up, going by, by, by what Lane said, would, blood work be a good marker of immune system or is that completely separate and not really connected at all? That's beyond my scope of practice. I mean, I'm sure there's markers in the blood you can test for immune function, but like Lane said, it doesn't mean you're not going to get really sick. No, no, but let me, I know. Okay. So let's assume you can get sick regardless of your immune system's good. I'm just saying if somebody's trying to judge if they have a good immune system or not, you know, we, we always go get our blood work done all the time. So yeah. let's say a guy goes, guy goes to get his blood work done. Everything is in normal range. Can that guy assume he's probably got good immune function for, you know, without doing any specific testing? You can get white blood cell counts and that's not in your leukocytes and T4s and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's going to be a relatively, you know, decent marker of, of where your, of where your, of where your immune system's at. Okay. But it's tough too, because that's at a baseline, right? That's at a baseline. 
you're also looking at like, what's the response? So it is a little complicated. And I'm sure if an immunologist was on here, he would be able to give a us a lot more. of nuanced talk yeah. and explain, you know, how it's, it's not quite so simple, but I mean, what we see, you know, in overall health is just, you know, the major stuff. Like don't people overcomplicate this because that's where you can <laughs> overcomplicating it. But it's like, I tell people, if you like for longevity, don't eat like an asshole, get enough sleep, exercise, you know, don't drink too much. Don't smoke. Manage your stress. <laughs> and limit your stress. Yeah. yeah. It's well, we used to say, uh, a friend of mine that we used to, I used to do a podcast with, uh, is longer, no longer with us, used to say, it's the broad strokes, not the scalpel. Sometimes yeah. if you can get the broad strokes right, most people are taking out a scalpel without getting the broad strokes right. Well, the bodybuilding comparison would be like, you know, the people who overanalyze every fucking detail. Like, that, like that, That's where well, it came should from. I, should, what, should I do 13 reps instead of 12? And it's like, dude, just go fucking train hard for 10 years and you're going to look good. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Like the people, the people who end up looking real, like, yeah, I'm sure there are people who train really hard for 10 years and don't look great, but it's probably pretty small, yeah. right? The problem is, is these guys overanalyze it and they end up doing nothing. Yeah. You know? So I guess to, to put a point on it, we could say the immune supplements are probably a help, but not without all of the other things that we've discussed in your lifestyle to begin with. And it's not immediate. And it's not immediate too. That's yeah. okay. Um, okay. So let's get into some bodybuilding nutrition stuff because Lane, the nutrition is kind of your area, correct? Yep, that's my wheelhouse. All right, so let's, there's one kind of pressing question that everybody talks about all the time in the bodybuilding world, and, and I know, I don't think you're a fan of it, but I am, so I want to ask you about this. Okay. Um, I'm a fan of bulking hard. Like, I, I like getting, not fat, but I like, you know, really, really bumping up the calories when I'm trying to put on mass. And I think we should define the term significant muscle first, because some people, if I say, can you put on muscle without bulking hard? Somebody would say, well, I put on five pounds this year or two pounds this year. And I'm like, that's not significant. Right? So, uh, my question is, can somebody put on a significant amount of muscle, assuming they're not a beginner, like they're already into lifting without bulking, uh, without being on a heavy surplus of calories? I think there's a couple of ways to look at this. You know, I, I, I have like general kind of guidelines that I go by when I work with clients or I make recommendations, but I very rarely just toss anything out and say that's, you know, that's worthless. Cause I, I just look at everything's tools in a toolbox. Right. Mm -hmm. But what I always tell people is, okay, if you're going to bulk hard, yes, you can probably add more lean body mass doing that. Here's the problem. And especially for, um, you know, people who aren't using PEDs is you've got to take that off, right? Yeah. And when you take it off, that's that where the real problem is. Because if you've put on a lot of excess body fat, now you're going to lose more lean body mass when you come down. I, I did a, um, can I, can I, I I'm sorry. Can I interrupt you for one second? Go ahead. Can we, can we discuss, okay, well, how about we just split it? Because yeah. I know some people that watch the podcast are natural and some people are, are, are not. Yep. Yep. So why don't we'll just start with the natural people first yep. since you since you already went down that road and then we'll yep. flip over to the other side. Okay, go ahead. go ahead. Sorry. Sounds good. Um, and that and I'll give some caveats to that as well. Um, so when I did a um, when I was writing my book, the complete contest prep guide, I actually went through and found all the natural bodybuilding case studies that are out there and tried to kind of compile the data. And basically what they saw was uh, when you diet, you lose on average, they lost about 
30% of the weight from lean body mass and about 70% from fat. Now that, that probably sounds really bad, but keep in mind lean body mass is also body water, mm. uh, connective tissue, like your gut tissue shrink during that time. So it's not as bad as it sounds. Um, mm. Some guys, I have guys freak out all the time because they're like, oh, I lost a pound of lean body mass. I'm like, it's probably water, dude. Yeah. Um, so, but that being said, um, they did see like people who had to lose more tended to lose more lean body mass. Okay. So that's my first thing is, okay, I believe in getting to a healthy body fat because if you're trying to stay shredded year round, you're not going to add muscle mass. Like that's okay. just, it's just, especially as a drug free person, like that's yeah. just not going to happen because yeah. you've got, you know, I'm sure you guys are kind of familiar with body fat set point theory. You know, you kind yeah. of have yeah. this, this natural level of body fat you gravitate towards. Well, if you can think about the signals that are being sent by the body, if you're under that set point, uh, protein is going to be more favored towards oxidation versus kind of being contributing towards muscle protein synthesis when you're under that body fat set point because, you know, you're starving. Not, not starving, but calorie deficits kind of controlled starvation, if you will. Whereas if you're in a surplus and you're near that set point or above that set point, um, you're, and it's actually more of a range, not an actual point, but I digress. Um, if you're, if you're near that set point or above that set point, you know, now the body says, okay, we have plenty of fuel. We can start to contribute more of this towards lean mass, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. Now, again, I am really grossly generalizing that. That's okay. Um, but what I would say is it's probably very unhelpful to be really lean all year round. However, it's probably also not helpful to get really fat, right? So it yeah. all, it all depends. Like somebody's like, I got up to uh, 230 cause I moved up weight class in powerlifting last year. Um, I've come back down now, but I mean, I was, I was probably like, you know, 16, 15, 16% body fat and calipers, which is fine. Like that's not yeah. fat. But like all the, you just see all the body dysmorphia come out. You know yeah. what I mean? Everybody's like, Oh, Lane forgot how to diet. He's fat. You know, that kind of stuff. And it's like, no, like that was conducive to building strength and lean body yeah. mass. Like that was, that was very helpful. So okay. uh, I don't, you know, but would have been worth it for me to go up to 20 or 25% body fat. I think that that starts to get that yeah. diminishing returns. I yeah. definitely would have added some more lean body mass, but probably would have lost it when I had to come down. Right. So I think that's part of it. Chris, where are you on that with your clients? Where do you, where do you feel is a good body fat percentage? I guess we should, I guess we should talk about it in terms of body fat percentage instead of just saying fat, because that's different for everybody. Exactly. And what Lane said about the set point theory is I really kind of use a lot of that per individual client basis. If somebody's set point is generally pretty chubby and say they were 300 pounds when they're an adolescent and they've lost a bunch of weight and they still have a decent amount of body fat on them, but yet they're on moderate to low calories, then that person is never going to achieve a 10% off-season body weight building naturally or not but if in the same token if you get somebody who's really lean all the time and they're walking around at eight ten percent and they're eating burger king they're going to have the ability to pack on more fat and take it off a little easier than say the, yeah. the opposite so it's really situational i mean i've had people be so hot and so much like on paper 750 calories above their baseline but it's probably not 750 calories above the baseline yeah. It just seems that way, but it's all according to how their body's responding. And the same token with somebody who's a little heavier weight or have a higher set point where their body fat wants to be higher, I will allow them to get a little fatter than to say I would yeah. a, a normal bodybuilder. 
Um, and that's the hard part because people like to have a broad general rule that they follow when there is no real broad general rule when it comes to like nutrition and you're altering your body composition because Chris, I know that, but you need to know the point of this show is to give people a broad general rule that they can follow. (laughs) Well, all right. A broad general rule. I usually tell somebody like, you know, if they're following a a plan and they're 90% on their calories or macros or whatever, how they track it. And I usually start by telling them add 350 calories a day, bring it to baseline calories on their non-training days, follow for seven days and then see how your body responds. If you're getting good training and, and you feel good, and digestion's good, energy's good, and weight is slowly trending up. When I say trending up, if you're natural, maybe one to two pounds per month, if that, and obviously keeping an idea of what your pictures look like and your body composition. Um, but if you're not natural, same thing. You're looking at pictures, looking at your weight, and if you're not gaining, you might need to add some more. Um, but then again, if you're, if you're gaining, you're gaining, you're gaining, and you're not, uh, if you're adding calories, adding calories, and you're not really gaining or you're gaining body fat, Maybe I'll look at your training, but yeah. some of those training aren't sufficient or they're training too much. Um, okay. So let me go back a bit. Cause uh, I think we were going a little bit off. So let's explain, explain to me what the body fat set point theory is. So that is that saying like, for example, my body for, for example, is probably comfortable around 12%. That's usually kind of where I'm, I'm happiest and my body just tends to go there. So that's, so you're saying if I tried to be 10% all year, I would, have less a less optimal way of building muscle like it wouldn't be as easy for me to build muscle is that what you're saying with that theory in theory yes okay well you're at 10 percent. you're probably still close enough that it wouldn't be that big of a difference it's more like if you so you got to think about set point is more of a range there's a little okay. bit more of a buffering zone you know I, okay. I i i don't like that they call it a set point now it's if you talk to scientists, they refer to it as a settling point because okay. it's more of a range. Yeah. I would say, you know, if you're, if you're happy around 12%, you know, anywhere from 10 to 14 is probably going to be that sweet range, you know? Yeah. But um, as a, but as a bodybuilder, aren't I like, okay, if I'm comfortable at 12 and I just stay at 12 in my mind, I'm like, I'm not really making any progress. I need to be pushing the envelope a bit. Right. Like I'm like, okay, if I, let's say I start the off season and I get up to like 12% body fat and I'd stay there all year. I feel like I'm not. Body mass. What? But if you're at 12% and you're gaining body weight, then I wouldn't want to change anything. It wouldn't matter. Yeah, you're right. right. So, so, okay. So if we talk about it as far as weight goes, we okay. want our weight to keep increasing, but we don't want our body fat to keep increasing. Is that what we're talking about? Well, ideally, but yeah. it doesn't always work out that way. Yeah. I mean, especially once you've been training for a while, you know, you're going to gain lean mass and fat mass concordantly. The, yeah. the idea being that, and I actually really like um, kind of like during a bulking season to do short mini cuts in between. Mm-hmm. And the reason I like doing that is because one, it, it kind of gives them some mental sanity. You know, when you've been stage lean and you always compare everything to that, it can be a mind fuck to go in the off season. Yeah. Some guys don't mind, but some, some, you know, there's some people and you've seen it, they're like, they compete all the time because they just can't handle being off season. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and they don't make prog- as much progress as they could. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's one thing. And also if you're doing like short cuts, you can afford to be relatively aggressive and you're going to, especially if you're near your set point or above, you're going to lose mostly fat mass. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's nice. Cause you can kind of build in those. You can gain, 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 build in a shortcut. And plus by the, by the time you're at that point, 
especially for the guys you're talking about, Fuad, who, who have trouble gaining mass. Yeah. You know, you're so sick of eating by that point. You're just like, oh, thank God. You know, you're I can eat do, a yeah. amount of calories, right? Yeah. So I like to build those in, like, like nutritional periodization, you mm-hmm. know what I mean, to build those in, to have that. I think the other thing to, to think about that we haven't really touched on for this talk is um, time frames. Right, like mm-hmm. if you're going to take a, a four-year off season or a two-year off season, <laughs> that's not an off season. That's a that's a, like a, you might as well be like me. I've been I haven't been on stage in three years. I'm like retired. I'm, right. when, I, when I say when I say off season, I mean like you know, the six months between shows or the right. you know what I mean. So, so that's the other thing to consider is if you're competing pretty frequently, yeah, um, it might behoove you to stay a little bit leaner, right? Because it's just that's a large fluctuation. We have. And again, this is on drug-free athletes. So, mm-hmm. you know, how much does it carry over? It's hard to know because we don't have direct examination. But we know that when it comes to like uh, testosterone, cortisol coming back to normal, sleep coming back to normal, and their, uh, the recovery of their endogenous BMR based on the case studies we have, it takes up almost the same amount of time to recover that as it did to actually lose the fat in the first place. Mm. So if you do, so consider that, um, you know, for again, talking about drug-free athlete yeah if they took six months to come down which a, a lot i know a lot of guys do 20 to 24 week prep in, in natural bodybuilding because we do like diet breaks and that kind of stuff just to kind of try to stave off some of that lean body mass loss um now you need six months recovery boom you're i mean that's the year yeah. you know yeah, what i mean yeah yeah so what i will say is that the longer your off season is going to be i think probably the heavier you can afford to let yourself get yeah. If you're doing shorter off season, and especially with the new rules with the IFBB, from what I understand, it's kind of encouraging you to compete much more frequently. Yeah. So when with that, you know, what I would tell people, and I, I have had some IFBB clients, not not recently, but a, a year or two back, mm-hmm. where I would say, listen, if if you really want to make some progress, I know it's hard to not compete for a while, but like take yeah. a year off really focus on building up some lean body mass. And then when you come back, let's do every freaking show and try to get you to the Olympia. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but if you're trying to make progress at the same time that you're trying to do all these shows, like that's going to be really tough to keep up. That's going to lead me down another path uh, a little bit later, but there's two things I want to go down. So um, the first thing I want to go, Chris or Lane, whoever wants to answer it. Um, when we talk about body fat set point theory, all of it makes sense to me, but how does somebody know, like a lot of people are just starting out. They haven't been dieting and not dieting in off seasons for years. So they don't know what their body's comfortable doing. They could be in only a year or two or they could just be starting. So they're like, how do I know what my body fat set point is? Well, are you, are you referring to somebody who hasn't really been weight training consistently? Yeah. I mean, like if you've been doing it for 10 years, you kind of know where your body is comfortable, right? But if you've been doing it for one or two years, or you're just starting, you have no idea like what your comfortable body fat level is. Uh, usually even with my general weight loss clients, like say if, um, you know, they're looking to lose a significant amount of weight or not, usually the common questions I usually ask them is like, you know, uh, the current diet that you've been following, because most people who come to me are already following a diet to lose weight. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Off. And they're like, Oh, well, I've been kind of eating like this for the last 60 days or 90 days. And I haven't really gained or lost any weight. Right. And then usually if there are reasonable body fat, I could assume to say, they're near their set point because they're obviously going out weekends or eating with excess calories, but yet their body weight is still the same. Yes. Now it's not going up. So I could assume at that point, given their lean body mass and what they're training, that's around the set point they should be or where their body is at that point. And then, then 
from there, the progression starts. But mm -hmm. I remember you, I read something that you wrote a while ago that, um, you know, exercise and weight training can rechange, can change that set point like over time and whether or not how long that takes. But like, even for myself, anecdotally, I've been able to maintain a much leaner physique now than I did eight years ago. And eight years ago, I would always get pudgy in the off season immediately. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to ever go that way anymore. I lose my appetite before that happens. Yeah. That actually goes for me as well. So that's a, that's a great question. Yeah. I think that, um, that that's, that's one aspect of it too. And the other one is that there is some research showing that potentially, cause people ask me all the time, can I change my set point? Um, you can definitely change it going up. There's a lot of research to show that you can reprogram it to be at a higher set point, which sucks. Yeah. There is some research suggesting that if you get a if you get to a leaner physique and you maintain that for one to two years, that that can effectively become your set point. Now, that seems strange when you consider set point. We think is mostly controlled by a hormone called leptin, yeah. um, and leptin is a hormone that's secreted by the adipose tissue. And you can kind of think about it like your body's body fat thermostat. So, if you have a thermostat, right, you set it to whatever seventy degrees uh, Fahrenheit for. I, I think you're Canadian, right? I'm Canadian, so, yeah. Yeah, so do you guys don't use Fahrenheit. Well, you guys probably know it. I'm, though, right? I'm right across from Detroit, so I use Fahrenheit. But ah, cool. go ahead. 70 is like 20 degrees Celsius. Anyway, go right. on. Yeah. 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 So let's say you set it to 70. Um, it gets a little hot. The AC kicks on, bumps it back down to 70, right? It gets a little cool. Heat kicks on, bumps it back up to 70. So as, your if, as you diet, your fat cells shrink, and they secrete less leptin. And the, the amount of leptin they secrete is controlled by two major factors. And the, the biggest one is just the size of your fat cells. So for the most part, your fat cell number is set and doesn't really change. Um, they just, they kind of get bigger or get smaller. Um, so when you're, when you're dieting, your fat cells are shrinking, um, your leptin's going down. And then the other factor is the short-term flux of nutrients across the cell, across the cell. So um, if you have like, they've, they've shown that if you have like a, a big, uh, like acutely a big meal of like carbohydrates, and whatnot, you can increase leptin. But um, that's led some people to say, well, you can refeed and it'll boost your metabolism. And that's kind of been debunked in terms of you never boost it more than the actual amount of calories you take in. So there can be psychological benefits to, you know, refeeds and that kind of stuff. But in terms yeah. of actually getting you like leaner by eating more doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. But back to the, the thermostat. So when you're, when you're overeating, your, your fat cells are expanding. They, they secrete more leptin telling your brain, your hypothalamus, Hey, you can stop eating. We're, 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 we're full. We're good. Uh, and also increasing your energy expenditure. Whereas when you're shrinking less leptin um, telling your hypothalamus, Hey, we're hungry. Uh, we need food. Um, and also uh, decreasing your energy expenditure. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's that's kind of we think how it works now if you if you really get into the nuts and bolts of the literature it's actually insanely complicated and there, there probably is another hormone that's in there called they call uh, adipose tissue catabolic factor but they haven't identified it yet but it's kind of like dark matter they know it exists but they're pretty yeah. sure it exists based on the way like leptin doesn't explain everything uh but they haven't identified it yet so okay. um kind of an interesting um breakdown but it also just a point to that that's some people get confused about calories in calories out too they go why well, ain't a calorie deficit didn't lose weight or i ain't or guys are like well 
I add calories, you know, I had, you know, 200 calories a day. I didn't gain weight. That means this whole calorie thing is bullshit. But no, you got to understand that you're looking at calories in, calories out as two independent variables when in fact they are intrinsically linked. So as you, I'm sure you guys have this experience, you, you start bulking, you go up to, you know, put up 4,000, 5,000 calories, you gain weight. Not forever. Yeah. Eventually yeah. that becomes your maintenance yeah. and then you've got to bump it again. And then yeah. that becomes your maintenance and you got to bump it again, right? That's because your body is increasing your energy expenditure. Yeah. And people hear energy expenditure, they think exercise, but it's actually much more nuanced than that. Your, your BMR goes up. So just your, your body just wastes energy because yeah. not just because you have more lean body mass, but it also becomes more wasteful, more thermogenic. And um, you fidget more. So there's a lot of studies on this and especially people who- I don't, I don't find that. If I'm eating 5,000 calories, I'm lazy as can be. Maybe, but, but well, yeah, because you, you feel bigger and whatnot. Honestly, man, I'm telling you, and, and I'm not trying to be, I know I'm trying to be, I'm kind of trying to be a smart ass, but honestly, when I'm in peak off season mode, I'm on the couch. Like there's no fidgeting, there's no moving. <laughs> so, I, so I don't know. Well, there's always exceptions too. Like that, yeah. that, totally. Um, yeah. So basically, but they've shown like, they did an overfeeding study one time, just for an example, um, it was by a guy named Levine. Mm. And they took, uh, I think it was like eight people put them in a metabolic ward, fed them exactly a, a specific amount of calories over, I think it was a thousand calories over their maintenance. There was one person in the study who actually lost like 0.8 kilos during the study. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So people again will look at that and say, well, calories in calories out, but it'd be like when you fill up your car, right? So we have a set gas mileage. It would be like when you filled up your car, when you started driving with a full tank, you got terrible gas mileage. And then the lower it got, the, your gas mileage would start going up to the point where when you got near the end of the tank, you could go almost 100 miles on a gallon, right? Does that yeah. make sense? That's yeah. a great analogy. That's really good. That's, that's kind of how it works. Your body just gets, and it goes the same way, right? Like when you diet down for a show. That is so efficient. Yeah. yeah. You, all of a sudden, the amount of calories that you couldn't pack on a, you know, a, you know, you couldn't pack on a single pound or whatever, or sorry, I'm, I'm using the wrong analogy, but you get to a, a level of calories that you're like, wow, I should lose weight on this. And eventually you stop losing weight, right? You have to okay. adjust down and, and you know, that's just your body becoming uh, just adapting. That's uh, just a testament to the survival mechanism of human beings just being an amazingly adaptable organism. Okay. We got to come back to that because everybody gets stuck in these plateaus. So we have to, yep. we have to come back to that. But sure. We didn't cover guys that are on PDs, and, and I'm not sure, Lane, if you have experience with – obviously, if you trained IFBB pros, you have experience with that as well. Yeah. So if, let's say, you are on – you're taking PDs and you're in the offseason. Now, we've kind of established that you want to be around your set body fat point. Mm -hmm. How far can somebody on PDs push past that point before they're – they've gone too far because part of the reason you guys are saying that is you don't want to get too fat as a natural person because it's going to take sure. forever to get it off and you're going to take yeah. off some lean body mass in the process with PDs. It's going to be a little bit easier, obviously, and you're going to retain more muscle in the process of losing fat as well. So what are we talking about as far as pushing the envelope body fat wise, if you're on PDs? Oh, well, I mean, I still wouldn't want my guy to get super fat. Either no, way. no, nobody wants to get super fat. Yeah. How, how far? Yeah, and, well, the thing is, I, I feel like you could push a little farther and not have to worry as much because you can also come down and get in shape faster and reduce the risk of losing lean mass. Not to mention using PDs in the off season, 
your ability to stay leaner is much easier because yeah. you're pushing well above calories and still be fine. And just like anybody knows who does use gear, who comes on and off, it's like staying lean when you're coming off of a cycle after having that muscle mass is very difficult just if that level shift. Um, so when your levels are that high, it's like you could push, get a little fat and make a correction in two weeks and be right back to where you were again. Yeah. It's not like, Oh crap, I have to diet for four weeks to get that body fat back off. Small yeah. corrections can make a difference. So you have a much bigger cushion to work with. I know this is way too simplistic for you guys, but I know what guys are looking for that are listening to this. They're looking for what body fat percentage is too fat. What cal- <laughs> what calorie amount is too little? And I know that's way- I know it's way too simplistic because I know it's, it's very, it's very well, interesting. Calorie wise, I don't even think you can answer that because everybody's different. But fat wise, I would say if you start losing visibility of your abs and you're a, you're a gear using bodybuilder, you're too fat. Like I don't think anybody should lose vision of their abs. So the, the Lee Priest Muscle Tech ad from the uh, early <laughs> yeah. 2000s might be a little far. Okay, wait a minute. That's I'm, yeah. I'm going to be the bro scientist for a minute. <laughs> all right, you guys can you guys can hold on to your science for a sec. When I was starting, I did the Lee Priest fucking diet for like the first three years of my career, and I probably put on 15 pounds of muscle the first year, maybe 10, the second two. And I know it's because I'm starting, so obviously you're going to put on the most muscle at the yeah. beginning. But I ate everything in sight, and I couldn't. I don't think I could see my abs the second year. That's for sure. But it worked. Like it worked. And now I see guys that are, this, the problem is now I see guys, and it's almost like the pendulum has swung the other way. Like when you say you should be able to see your abs, there's different degrees of where you can see your abs. Like I can see my abs right now, but they're covered with a layer of fat. But some guys think seeing your abs is like they should be lean cut abs. And so guys are, so guys are eating less now and it's taking them longer to get bigger. So I think body fat, (laughs) you could call that. I think there's a couple of different things. I I will give a a more direct answer. Um, But please people listening, don't, don't straw man what I'm saying. Okay. And say, Lane said 15% (laughs) and that's the, that's the magic number. Um, So I think first thing is philosophy of use. Okay. So I know a lot of guys in terms of PEDs, um, some guys, everybody's got different philosophies of use. Um, some guys say I go completely off cycle in the off season. I want to completely refresh my body. I don't mm-hmm. want to take anything, you know, other than PCT and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, you know, and then they, they, they load up hard for contest prep, uh, to maintain max amount of muscle. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a different philosophy of use than, you know, like if you're going to continue using throughout the year, uh, probably a little bit lower dose, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so that, that makes it hard to generalize. Right. Um, and then the other thing is again, with the, with, I think possibly what you're seeing with the shift in guys wanting to stay leaner is just the, the changes in the rules, right? Before, if you were a big name, you go in, win one show, boom, now you can just focus on getting ready for the Olympia. Right now. I don't, you don't really have that option anymore. I don't know if that's it. I don't know if that's it, Lane. I, I, I don't, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think that's okay. I think the shift is more social media based. Could be yeah, Instagram because I feel like guys have to guys are always content either because of their sponsorships or just because of their ego. They constantly have to be posting and they're scared to get too fat. That's true. They can't make a YouTube video. They can't post their progress photos, blah, blah, blah. Like if I, if I got as fat as I did when I was 22 and posted a photo, I would be ridiculed for that photo would never disappear. Right. So I feel like that's part of the problem, but I'm sorry. Carry on. No, it's okay. I, like I posted a photo the other day and somebody was like, like, I felt like I looked 
pretty good, you know? And somebody was like, oh, you looked way better when you were doing bodybuilding. I'm like, do you understand how like flexing and tan and lighting works and yeah. low body fat versus yeah. unflexed, no tan and, and, and like bathroom lighting works? Like, do you, People are so I really direct. have to, do I have to cover this? <laughs> but that's how new, that's all the stuff that new guys have to deal with. And I feel like yeah. that's why, that's why they're scared to eat now because they yeah. don't want to. Yeah, so that's a great point, and you're probably right about that. It, it could be a little bit of both, but you're, you're right because, yeah. I mean, the game has changed, not to go off on a tangent, but the game has changed. Like now, you don't have to be Mr. Olympia to make a living in bodybuilding. You just got to be popular, right? Like you just got to be popular and sell your shit. Yeah. Um, so what I will say is, Fod, you brought up a good point of when you were getting into it, you were overfeeding a lot. I think that if you're going to go on a, a dreamer bulk, right, or a folk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Early in a career is probably best to do it when you can put on a lot of lean body mass quickly. There was, again, this is not in bodybuilders, but there was an overfeeding study done a while back where they looked at feeding, um, there were, it was resistance trained males and they fed either 20% over maintenance, 40% over or 60% over. And they basically saw no difference in the lean body mass accrual. Really? So yeah. So just by, you know, and again, it was a very highly controlled study. So it was only four weeks. So it's, mm. you know, but the plus item is very highly controlled. Yeah. So, you know, if we're going to take any kind of like indication from that, it might be that, Hey, there's this only a certain amount of muscle you can add per unit time, which I think is probably right. Uh, yeah. And even like, I always tell people, there's a very unpopular opinion amongst uh, enhanced guys, but mm. I'm like, you guys aren't unicorns. Sorry. Um, like it doesn't like some guys are, who are enhanced to like, well, it completely changes your metabolism. And like, none of this stuff applies to you. But like, I think the basic guys applies. Yeah. I think it just changes the magnitude. Yeah. Right. I, I, I think, think, I think natural, I think natural guys are the ones that make those claims though, because anytime I try and tell somebody, yeah, it goes both ways. You're right. I think when I try to tell somebody something about eating, they're like, well, you're on stuff. It doesn't count. Right. Yeah, it doesn't count. <laughs> so. Sure. And, and, and by, so I'm, you're viewing it through your lens. I'm viewing it through mine. That, if I've yeah. had guys on gear be like, what do you know? You fucking puny natural little pussy. No, you know, the, the truth is, for those, of, for those people out there listening, the truth of it is I have way more respect. Not, I shouldn't say respect, but I respect the knowledge of a natural athlete almost more so because there's less shortcuts. Like everything you do has to be bang on to gain the muscle. Right. Whereas we have a yeah. little bit of assistance. But so, the, the way to think about it is every, at your guys' level, everybody's doing the same thing or yeah. similar stuff, right? It's yeah. not – so at the end of the day, it's not really a shortcut because you're still competing against people that are doing the same thing. Well, so I, 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 didn't mean, I didn't mean shortcut that way. I mean, for, I'll take, for example, like if I'm dieting for a show. I can, I can put barbecue sauce and ketchup all over my food <laughs> and probably still get shredded, right? It's kind of like that thing, whereas like a natural guy probably can't do that. So – it's almost like you have to be a little more meticulous. Unpopular that, opinion. They, they can, they just, they're, but they're going to eat less calories. Oh, well, in your, in your world. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Anyway. Unpopular opinion. Um, so anyways, what I would say is that if you're going to do a hard bulk, yeah. um, early in your career is probably better if you're a bodybuilder. Yeah. As you get more and more advanced, like, would it really make sense for Dexter Jackson to go and put on 50 pounds trying to gain muscle? No. no, he's, he's, you know, I don't think a hard genetic limit exists. I think it's kind of asymptotic where you, you might be able to get to the point where you still make gains, but it's just minuscule and it's almost yeah. beyond like where you can't even tell anymore. Yeah. Um, 
but no, of course it wouldn't make sense for him to go in and do that. Like he, the, he would, it would actually probably hurt him more than it would help him. Right. Yeah. But for, you know, a guy who's 22 years old, who's like a phenom, who's doing really well, you know, in the, in the, in the amateur ranks, you know, that might make more sense. And yeah. I will say like, if we've got any kind of, you know, top NPC guys or up and coming NPC guys, like don't be in a rush to turn pro. Like that's, I tell this to a lot of my athletes. I'm like, a lot of y'all are in a rush to turn pro. Put this in your head. Once you turn pro, you may never win another show. Yeah. You might do true. everything right. And you might never, you might even not even get a top five call out. That's true. So don't be in a rush to turn pro. Yeah. Like focus on building as much muscle mass as you possibly can. And listen, if you're good enough, you're going to turn pro, right? Because if you can't turn pro, you're not going to place well in the pros anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Like don't be in a rush to turn pro. So to that end, I think a kind of harder, you know, gaining phase when you're younger. Now that said, if we're talking about getting back to your actual question, yeah. if we're talking about like, what would I say is kind of the limit of how fat I would want somebody to get? As Chris said, depends on their body fat set point. What I would say is whatever they kind of are naturally tend to be at. And I think most people actually kind of know their body fat set point. If somebody has like just been training for a little while, it's probably what you are right now. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, probably what your yeah. body fat set point is. Um, I would say like, for example, if that is, let's just take an, even, an easy number, 10%. Mm -hmm. I would say probably don't get 30% out of range of that. Me meaning not 30% body fat. Yeah. I wouldn't go much over 13, right? Like you don't- Oh, need, I see what you're saying, okay. Or actually, you know what? I'd probably give a little more leeway, 50%. Like you don't need to get, you know, to 20% body fat. Like I just remember being yeah. on the bodybuilding.com days of guys who would put on like, a, I, I saw one guy put on like a hundred pounds and he was a dude, like he had some muscle mass, but I'm, I'm like, bro, you're, you're 180 pounds of lean body mass and 300 pounds of total body weight. Like you yeah. are obese. You're strong, but you're obese. You but know? that goes, but that goes back to the study you were talking about, which I didn't know about was, the guys you said put on 20%, 40%, or sorry, eight that much more than their, than their uh, metabolic rate all gain the same amount of muscle. Yep. That, that to me is a little bit shocking because I would think the guy that ate the most, even though he probably got the fattest, probably gained the most muscle. So you're saying that study in particular apparently is – I don't know if there's more, but that, that study showing that more necessarily isn't better. Right. Now, the one caveat I'll put with that is every – that – you know, studies report averages, right? And we yeah. do statistical analyses to try to determine, hey, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of stats, but basically when we try to determine, hey, is one group different than another? Um, we do something called a, um, you know, an ANOVA or a T-test or that sort of thing. Basically what the statistic reports to you is like a P-value. And that P-value is roughly translated into, okay, how, how, how much chance is there that these differences are just due to random chance, right? Yeah. That you just happen to get certain people that fall into certain groups. Yeah. So it is always possible that for certain individuals in those studies, one could be better. What's difficult is it's difficult to identify who that is. Right. Okay. And I think, probably less so physiologically, some people just do better psychologically with a certain approach too. Like you said, I tell this to people all the time. They say, well, I just like this. I said, okay, it's a perfectly reasonable reason to do it. Like if you just feel more comfortable that way and you like it better and you've tried it other ways and you still like this better, well, fucking A, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, 
that's your personal preference. And it yeah. obviously can work, right? Because we see guys who do it every different way and it works, right? Yeah. Like there, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And I think that, that that mindset of just being okay with personal preference, um, everybody tries to like make it out as to why their way is like physiologically better, like some metabolic reason. And a lot of times I just look at it and I go, that's just what they like. And yeah, that, that person. If you, like it, yeah. if you like it, it's it's actually more likely to work for you based on what we know about the power of suggestions. So Yeah. So Chris, have you noticed the same thing with your clients? Like no matter how much they try and bulk, there's kind of like a really kind of an average of how much they're gaining each year. Well, the, the, my long-term clients, I, I would say it's totally genetic. Like yeah. an individual that has continuously have gained five to six pounds of stage weight in the last six years. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to assume that obviously there's going to be a cap off point for him, but I would assume he's going to gain more muscle next year because he never loses his appetite and his calories just keep going up and up and up and he just keeps growing, growing, growing. Yeah. But I have a couple other people that every year it's like, these are not natural guys. Um, usually two or three pounds, maybe one pound, but they look better on stage. You know, it's very, yeah. Slow, but yeah. it's always the same for them. They're not going to come back their third year after putting on three pounds the first three years and all of a sudden jump 10 pound gain mm -hmm. by increasing food. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but like, I, I think like what people need to take away from this is like everybody likes to jump on that 1.01% who puts on 30 pounds in one year. And they're like, I got to do what that guy does. Yeah. And I have to understand that like you were used an individual and you have to look at the data you've accumulated doing your own thing the last few years and continue that, that trajectory. Don't worry about too much what other people's doing. Like lane sense, like preference is important. Um, you know, I always make this tell people sometimes like that I'll, I'll suggest something in a prep and they go, Hey, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. And they're like, it's a little too extreme for me. I'm like, that's fine. They're like, well, do you think well, I'm making the wrong decision? I go, if, if doing what I'm doing makes you feel uncomfortable, it is the wrong decision. Yeah if we're going to continue to go in a little bit in the right direction you are and you feel better about it, you're probably going to get better results that way. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, um, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, okay. I was going to say, so the one thing I can take from this in a generality that kind of we've discussed over and over again is you guys both agree that staying below your body fat set point is probably not conducive to putting on muscle. Correct. Okay, so that we can agree then staying lean. The guys who stay lean all year, I mean, if they're genetically lean, that's not their fault, I guess. But staying below your body fat set point is not going to help you get As you. long as we understand that lean is, is an individual definition. That's right? what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah, that's what yes. I'm saying. Yeah. So it's lean compared to you, right? So, so, if if you're, so if your body's comfortable at 8% and you're staying at 6 you're not going to put on a lot of muscle. Probably not ideal. Okay, that's kind of where I was going with that. Okay, so... Uh, there's a couple things I want to get into from that. And one, you said something about gaining in a deficit and I, Chris, I've talked to you about this before. So I just want to make sure all, we're all in agreement. We've discussed before that gaining at a deficit, probably only gaining in a calorie deficit probably only happens if you're a beginner, if you're on PEDs or you're some genetic freak. Is that pretty much how everybody feels just so I can cover that? I'd add one more. Uh, if you're very obese, you can gain on muscle in a deficit because really? it's not, yeah, because you're you you got to think about um, your body's body fat sets. Your body's body fat stores are kind of like your fuel reservoir. Yeah. So if you go into a deficit, yes, you're drawing on body fat stores. But if you're somebody who's obese, you have so much body fat, your body's not going to really 
I hate using this word because it's kind of bro sciencey, but panic. Yeah, so say the same thing, panic. Yeah, I like bro science. Body mass. So I, I think if you're OB, and we do see that. Like we have seen that in people um, when they do studies uh, in obese and their resistance training, they do see people who uh, are obese who are resistance training who can gain some lean body mass. Now it's not as much as they would gain, you know, obviously not being in a deficit, but Hey, it's, it's good news. And then obviously the, the one other caveat would be any combination of those three, right? Yeah. Beginner obese or on PEDs. Chris, do you agree with that? Yeah. I, I but like, I get people who always want to do that. And I tell them like, listen, it's like trying to save money for a house, but you're also trying to invest in the stock market. It's yeah. like, it, you, let's do one and then let's focus on the other because they're going to be upset at the end. Anyway, they're going to be like, we only gained one pound of muscle and I lost four pounds of fat versus 10 pounds of fat and four pounds of muscle. Just, <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're not, they're, they're not going to be happy with either thing. Right. Right. I yeah. saw a meme that I really liked and it's the, the three doors. I don't know if you guys seen this. It's three doors. And then the guy's kicking in the third door. Right. And it's the first door was uh, focused on building muscle. Yes. <laughs> focus on losing fat. Try to do both at the same time and make no progress like I have like the, for the last three years. You know, yeah. and that's, well, that, that was me. And I think that's a lot of guys when they first get into this. It's like you get into lifting and you're so impatient, you know. So you get, you're like, fuck it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bulk hard, get swole, you know. And then you find that, A, all that food doesn't go straight to your biceps and your shoulders. It goes mm-hmm. to your gut pretty quick, right? Yeah. So then what do you do? You start trying to cut because, well – I'm going to get ripped for summer and you know, the girls or whatever. Yeah. And then you start feeling kind of skinny and weak and you go, okay, back to bulking. And it's like, <laughs> no, you need to, I'm not saying you've got to go hard on each, but you need to commit a certain period of time. Yeah. To really doing that. And if you look at guys, and this is especially true for, for drug free, you look at guys who are do who do well, who have, you know, on average do really well they spend a significant period of their career not dieting. Yeah. They, they spend you, when, cause when you, you know, especially for, again, for P, not non PD, when you start dieting, I mean, that's the muscle mass you got, right? Like you're probably not building a whole lot of it. So. I know, I know this isn't a popular opinion and I, actually I know it's not even true, but I consider that when I start dieting anyway, like when I start dieting, yeah. if I'm, if my lean body mass is 255, 260, I'm like, that's what I'm going to be working with in 12 weeks. So I know people say, well, if you're on PEDs, you can gain while you're on a diet. I mean, it's a, (laughs) yeah. I mean, people try all the time. Like, Oh, I'm going to be like Kevin Lavroni and I'm going to grow into the show. I'm like, that's not, it's not possible. Or Ronnie Coleman. You mean like the two most gifted guys in maybe the history of the sport? Yeah. Okay. Have fun with that. Good luck. Yeah. I think, I think it's important to also note that it's easier for people, whether they're on PEDs or not, I think it's easier for people that have that are competing because they have phases, right? Like when I started bodybuilding, it was easy for me to get fat and it was easy for me to get skinny and pick one because I knew this was my off season and this is my diet. But I think for the average person that doesn't compete, they don't have that staying power because there's no, there's no show they're pointing. Yeah. There's no end goal. Right. So, so, so they'll get fat for a month and then they're like, Oh, I don't like this anymore. And I want to get shredded. And then they're like, you said, they'll get weak and they want to go, but there's no end goal. So they don't know what to do with themselves. So how do we keep them? How do we keep them focused? And, and I think Lane, that's where you come in. Cause you talk a lot about, um, you talk about a lot about flexible dieting and things like that. So that's kind of where I think that comes into play the most, but it's kind of leading to something else I want to ask you about. 
do you think the flexible dieting model, which I think is great for the average person, do you think it's good for competitors? Uh, it depends on the competitor. Um, so here, here's, here's where people kind of straw man what I say about different things. Like, so let me just, I'll give you a two minute background on how I came to this. So whenever anybody makes it, after being involved in science and having all these ideas and getting 99% of them eviscerated over the course of my scientific career and being disproven, <laughs> you know, cause I had, I had all the ideas, okay, carbs make us fat. Nope. Uh, high fructose corn syrup is, you know, is, is fattening everybody. It's the cause of obesity. Nope. Like, so whenever I hear somebody make a claim, my immediate thought is, hmm, gee, I wonder if that's bullshit. So I just, but I do that for myself. Like if I have a thought or my wife and I, so my wife has a master in, uh, master's in dietetics. So when we're rapping, we'll even do that with ourselves. I'm like, oh, I'm not sure if that's true. Right? Like, so we'll kind of, yeah. I want to disprove myself first yeah. because I don't want some asshole to disprove me. Right? <laughs> So when I'm looking at stuff, I'm always like, okay, does that make sense? So I like everybody, right? When I prep for my first bodybuilding shows, I'm like, can't have sugar, can't have high fructose corn syrup, can't have this and that. From a, but I thought it was because of a physiological perspective, you could not get lean eating those. Yeah. And then I went and looked at studies where they do things called isocaloric and they equate calories. And you're just, you want to talk about being underwhelmed with the research. Um, when you equate calories and especially you equate protein, you just find a whole lot of shit doesn't make much difference. Explain, uh, explain that. So um, let me just give an example of like carbohydrates and fats, for example. Yeah. The, the, this is where the biggest like nutritional tribes are, right? Like it's low carb or low fat or whatever it is. Um, so we have to date, I think it's 33 studies where uh, protein and calories have been matched uh, and either food has been provided or it's been like a metabolic ward study. So we're, we're relatively confident of the, the strictness of the control. Um, and it's important to equate protein between studies because protein is thermogenic. Protein has a higher TEF or thermic effect of food. Um, you know, protein's about 20, 30% for TEF, whereas carbs are like five to 10 and fats are zero to 3%. Can you, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can you briefly explain the thermic, yeah. thermic just because people aren't, aren't going to know what that is. Absolutely. So the thermic effect of food basically is how much energy does the system have to put in to get the energy out of what you okay. ate, right? Okay. So if I say 20, 30%, it means if you ate hundred calories from protein, your yield will be about 70 to 80. Does that make sense? Yeah. Carbohydrates will be about 90 to 95 and fats will be about, you know, 97 to hundred fats are have the lowest one. Um, so we need to equate protein because if we have, if we're comparing like some of the old, like ketogenic diet studies, for example, they were comparing the ketogenic diet to the standard American diet, but the ketogenic diet was having more protein and they showed better fat loss. And they're like, see, ketogenic diets, you know, the, the, the bee's knees. Yeah. So when they equate protein and calories in these, these 33 studies, the summation of the research, there was a recent meta-analysis done of this, which is basically like summarizing all these studies together, yeah. um, found that there was essentially no difference in fat loss uh, okay. between these studies. And like you had some isolated studies that had some differing results, whatever, but on the whole, there was no difference. In fact, if anything, there was a small, very small favoritism towards a lower fat. Okay. Um, so what that says to me is you just pick what you like, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Whatever, whatever you feel better on. People yeah. tell me like, well, I just like eating this way. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. Well, I can do that. Go for it. Like, yeah. but just don't try to tell me it's better. Right. Yeah. 
So what people tend to do is they find what they like and what worked for them. And then they do retroactively do mental gymnastics and fuckery with the science to try to prove that their way of doing things is the best way possible. Um, mm. So when it comes to flexible dieting, that's kind of where I started. I'm like, Oh shit. So then I kind of went down the, the sugar rabbit hole and I was like, okay, well, all right. So carbs aren't bad, but sugar's gotta be bad. Mm. And I did the same thing as I was like, Oh shit. If you look at the actual studies where they control calories and match calories between high sugar and low sugar and protein, you don't. Okay. So let me interrupt you for a second for a couple of reasons before we go on to the high sugar, Chris, have you noticed the same thing with your clients, whether it be, uh, you know, if, I know you, pro- you probably have different diets for everybody because I know you're, you're one of those coaches. So have you noticed the same progress between low carb, high carb? Before Chris answers, let me throw one caveat in there just because I, I want to put this out there before he answers. <laughs> okay. Um, a ketogenic diet may not be optimal for gaining lean body mass. Yeah. Um, we do see higher rates of nitrogen excretion on a ketogenic diet, at least initially. And there was one study where they were overfeeding people with a ketogenic diet or a non-ketogenic diet, protein calorie equated diet, and the ketogenic diet group gained less lean body mass. Okay. So with that caveat all the way, I'll let uh, Chris answer. Okay. Um, I prepped somebody on what is called a backloading diet. I'm sure you guys are familiar. That's after, for those who don't know, that's after your workout where all the carbs come in. Yeah, and most of the calories are towards the end of the day. Okay. But this uh, individual said that, um, I, I don't want to go into why or whatever, but basically we prepped him into a show on ice cream, rice checks, Pop-Tarts, junk food. Did you really? Chicken, and he got shredded. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he was like, he swore the ice cream and these certain foods worked. I'm like, all right, dude, like this is not generally how I do things. I go, but we'll, we'll let it run. And we did it progressive and we just- Wait a minute, I'm sorry. Over time. I'm sorry, Chris. This He came to you with this diet or you started him on this diet? No, no, he, no. I wouldn't start that. <laughs> Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> no, okay, he so. came to me and he wanted to do this particular method. He said, can, I ha- can, can you help me with it? And I said, you know, this is not what I normally do, but sure I will. And, you know, I'm like, we'll, we'll see how it goes, you know, and it, it worked. I mean, he got really lean. He got straight glutes. Yeah. He just, now, Chris, was, what everybody's going to take out of that is Chris said, I can eat as much ice cream as I want. You know, you know how many, cli- you know how many, you know how many clients he's going to get after this fucking show now? <laughs> well, I think Chris and I would both agree that, you know, that's, so the caveat to all of this is that it depends. Did this guy have a pretty fast metabolism, Chris? Like, was he able to eat quite a bit? I would say he's just moderate. I mean, he wasn't super super lean. So let me give you my perspective, Chris, on how I came to flexible dieting. Wait a minute. Wait, I just, before you go on, Lane, I just want Chris to finish. I just want him to finish in the general, as as, as your clientele. So that guy is obviously an exception. Yeah. As far as everybody goes, have you noticed one thing is better than another? Or is it like you said, like it works each person is like individual. Each person is individual, but I have a personal preference in liking to have certain foods. But like, if somebody is like, Hey man, can I substitute my white rice for check cereal or raisin bran or something in prep? I, I, I will do that. You know, it, it doesn't make a huge difference as long as we're not adding a considerable amount of calories back. Like some cereals have fats in it, whatever. Um, but I mean, I prefer, I'm a dietitian, I'm a master's nutrition. So like, I still want nutrient dense foods, you know, yeah. especially in the caloric deficit. Oh, but I'm saying like, as far as uh, a high carb diet or a high fat diet, 
if if we're talking one or the other i know there's obviously combinations but have you noticed that you're you can get guys shredded on either diet i'll be honest with you i, I don't have good luck getting somebody shredded on a keto diet like i i just think it, it works at first it works pretty well but like i just think people's look is better in my personal experience and also my personal experiences in fact um, yeah. people diet with cycling carbs or having some sort of carbohydrate intake in there. When yeah. you go zero carb, that's just not my method. Maybe I'm not experienced enough to get somebody that way with ketogenic diet, but I've just found that it, even with my natural guys, I have a lot of natural bodybuilders too. And even putting them down to ketogenic diet, it just, the body just didn't look right. Didn't let me, let me just, I'm sorry. I'm going to kind of put one more, one more bit in there. When I say low carb, I'm talking about like, so I work with John Meadows. Okay. Yeah, John Meadows can get me down to like 50 to 80, maybe 100 grams of carbs, which is low for me because I weigh 290 pounds. Um, but if you work, when I work with Chris Aceto, he'll keep me around 250, 300. So obviously it's much higher. So what I'm saying is between those two diets, if you've worked, if you've used both with clients, are you, can you get people shredded with both? Like, are you experiencing what Lane was talking about? Yeah. Okay. Okay. But you're saying yeah. overall you get a better look on stage if you have some carbs in your diet. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like people's body sometimes look a little tired and when they haven't had, when they have like zero carb for a very long time, yeah. take their refeed days or their carbohydrate days. Um, I just think their metabolism works better. It could be totally anecdotal. It could be the groups that people I'm working with. Um, but natural and not natural. I, I always find that um, having some carbs and yeah. not very ketogenic is better. So there's actually some data for that. Uh, Chris. So there was actually a study that and I can't remember who did the study, but um, they actually looked uh, visually, they came up with a visual indexing score of, um, of for physique essentially, and looked at people who ate, you know, low fat versus low. And they actually found that people are eating more carbs. Uh, let me put this way: who were able to eat more carbs, right? Like you can't, you can't just give everybody 250 grams of carbs a day and expect that yeah. they'll get shredded. Some, some people will need to get lower than that, even yeah. if their fat's already low as well. Yeah. Um, but eating, you know, with as many carbs as they can, um, I always say I like to keep as many carbohydrates as I can in and get somebody lean yeah. uh, because obviously you, you're getting a glycogen effect, one, so that's you're filling out the muscles. Um, also, you know, while carbohydrates don't seem to have an impact on muscle protein synthesis, uh, insulin is a pretty powerful inhibitor of muscle protein breakdown, uh, which during a, a deficit might be even more important. So I, I think that those, that those things are, are, that there's probably some, something to that, Chris. And then also, um, there was a study done where they looked at, um, so it's an observational study, correlational, so we have to be careful drawing conclusions. They found that the, on the average, um, they studied bodybuilders and looked at who placed high. And actually one of the uh, highest indicators of somebody placing high was their carbohydrate intake. People who placed higher tended to eat more carbohydrates. Now, that could be more of a function of people who are more genetically gifted um, are able to eat more, have yeah. you know, more energy expenditure. Yeah. But it, what it su certainly suggests is that carbs are not your enemy. enemy. Yeah for on the whole right but again it's individual in terms of what each individual can can tolerate um before we go we're going to go to the next thing but i before we i had two questions so i want you to kind of pick which one you want to cover first lane i think one's probably faster so well no because well, because, well no no because the flexible dieting conversation is a long one yes but you also discussed the high sugar 
I wanted to get into the high sugar thing because sure. I, I can't see that being true. So I want, I want you to just kind of discuss that a bit. Okay. So we have, there's, there was a study done. There's about, I would say, 15 studies or somewhere around there where they equate calories between groups and they, um, they have people eat either high sugar or low sugar. And in all the studies I've seen so far, no differences in fat loss or muscle retention. Um, and there was a, the, probably the best study was done by a guy named Sirwit. It was back in uh, 2001. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, people, they put them on uh, two different diets. One diet was they had uh, it was about 10 grams of sugar a day. And the other diet was over 100 grams of sugar a day. So, I mean, you got to imagine if we're going to see something, it's going to be with this, right? Yeah, and they were, yeah. This was very tightly controlled. All the food was provided. They both groups lost almost the exact same amount of weight. So right? when you almost say that, exactly. so when you say that, is there calories, let's say their calories were 2,500. Was it still, was it? St- I think it was 1,800. Yeah. Okay. So let's say it's 1,800. Was it still 1,800, whether you're eating 100 grams or 10 grams, they still yes. kept their calories the same. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now that being said, so that's, so in terms of does sugar appear to be kind of an, an independent lipogenic agent independent of calories? No. Okay. However, what I will tell people like the, the, the diet that Chris's client went on, you know, ice cream and pop tarts and that kind of stuff. Um, most people aren't going to do well with that. Not yeah. because it's physiologically different for them, but because that's just not going to be very satiating for most people. Like, yeah. think about how, you know, it's going to, it's going to make you more hungry. Sure. Yeah, of yeah. course. So yeah. like when I flexible diet, for example, in the peak of my off season, I always compare it to a budget, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm peak of my off season, I can have 4,000 calories a day. Um, you know, if I'm able to hit my protein, carbon, fat intakes, get enough micronutrients, uh, get enough fiber. If I have, you know, a bunch, you know, I'll get to the end of the day and have, you know, you know, 150, 200 grams of carbs left over, you know, 30, 40 grams of fat. I mean, if I don't want to go to bed feeling like a bloated whale, I mean, that's where like having some pop tarts or having, you know, some ice cream or something that's a little more calorie dense, you know, to fill out your budget can be really helpful. Mean so, you're, mean so, you're going to have, mean you're going to have issues, Lane. Okay. Well, <laughs> you can argue a bit about it. Um, so, so like, let's say somebody has, um, makes a million dollars a year. Yeah. Is it okay for them to go out and buy a $150,000 sports car as long as they can still uh, budget correctly, uh, pay their, you know, pay their mortgage, uh, you know, take care of their expenses, all that kind of stuff, but they have a bunch of cash left over and they want to blow it? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. If somebody makes $200,000 a year, let's just assume cash and no loans and all that kind of stuff. If somebody makes $200,000 a year, is it a good idea for them to spend $150,000 on a sports car if it means they can't pay their mortgage and they can't, you know, save money and all that? No, it's not a good idea. But wait a minute. I got a caveat to your analogy. All right. You make a million dollars a year, you can buy a $150,000 sports car, right? And have money left over. Yep. But will you make $2 million the next year? Like, this is my thing is like, it's like well, you're, you know what I'm saying? Well, but that would mean that by, that would mean that you're somehow doubling your energy expenditure. If I'm, if I'm, uh, understanding the analogy. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm understanding the analogy. So, so what I will say is that, um, I think for most people getting uh, a lot of your calories from, you know, you know, high energy dense foods is probably not a good idea. 
Um, okay, let me but, let me go back. Let me go back and break this down, just because I'm a little bit confused by the study. So, yeah. what about what about people that are are point to? And Chris, I'm not sure where you are on this. I, I want to know your opinion about this before I ask so, that question. I understand what Lane's saying. I've actually looked at the studies. Like I've, like I've read a lot of your stuff and looked up stuff. I'm always trying to learn. But like I know what he's saying. He's saying like you know, sugar having a varying amount of sugar in the diet could provide your control for calories. It's not going to affect your rate of loss. Yeah. And that's true because I mean, anecdotally, my last show, I'm eating rice and grinds, which has a few gram, uh, three or four grams of sugar per. 35 grams of carbs of cream of rice and I was eating 300 carbs a day of that and I was eating fruit multiple times a day and I got peeled yeah. so like, if sugar was a, a situation I should have been only being able to eat oatmeal and sweet potatoes you know okay but wait a minute so I understand the you know for I don't know calories and calories out I understand we're just replacing the calories with a, a simple sugar instead of a, a low glycemic but what about people that point to that all the time like you can't have you can't replace rice with you know, a can of Coke. You know what I mean? Like you, because it's not, not the in terms same. of what happens with satiety or that, you know, there's micronutrients in rice and whatnot, but micronutrients don't really, don't really have an impact on body composition other than maybe vitamin D, that sort of thing. But doesn't spiking your, like people are led to believe that spiking, ah. your, spiking your insulin levels is going to help, is going to cause you to store more body fat. Is that false? Well, yeah, plenty of bodybuilders take insulin and get shredded anyway. I don't take insulin, so I don't. I mean, I have, but I don't. I don't like insulin, so, so I don't really. So I'll, I'll, but I'll, I'll answer you directly, yeah. uh, and then I'll let Chris give his his input. So, um, if you, so glycemic index refers to the rate at which glucose appears into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. um, if you eat something that appears rapidly in the bloodstream, you will get a rapid response of insulin, but it'll also be shorter. Okay. Um, the area under the curve is going to look pretty similar. Uh, in terms of total insulin secretion, the difference is with uh, low GI foods, it's just going to be more blunted yeah. and low. Um, that I mean, we have quite a few studies now on low, on low GI versus high GI. Doesn't seem to make a difference in fat loss. The one caveat where it might make a difference is satiety, and also uh, possibly people who, if you're somebody who is like you know pre-diabetic, that sort of thing. If you follow a low GI diet, there is evidence that you will start to improve your blood markers, a little bit of health, a little bit quicker than somebody who follows a high GI diet. But at the end of the day, if both groups lose the same amount of weight yeah. over time, they get similar improvements. But these things aren't made in a vacuum, right? Like, okay, fine. If we're talking numbers and math, you're right. But if, if I tell a guy yeah, he can... Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if, if we're talking numbers in the, in the real world in a, in a real setting if i told this guy he could have a sliver of a cake with every meal or he could have uh, a cup and a half of rice and it would be the same diet you'd still get shredded that guy's gonna have an impossible time with the slice of cake right. so don't have it but but i'm saying like it's it's kind of like a misleading study like it's telling you like you can have it but it's really well, like no, no. So you're you're conflating a little bit because here's the here's the thing, I don't. So this is where uh, and you guys have both experienced this where you say something, and people think that so because I'm saying sugar doesn't stop you from getting shredded. What people will take from this is Lane said everybody should eat sugar. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. Right? That's not what, I'm so right. what I tell people is you have the choice if you want to do that if you want to spend that that budget on that. Um, I wouldn't spend much of it on that because like you said, you're going to have a really hard time sticking to it. Mm. But 
it's important to give people enough flexibility because here's, here's how I came to flexible dieting. Yeah. I tried to stick really rigidly to the bodybuilding foods and what would happen, this is when I was in college, is somebody would buy a pizza, bring it over and I'd end up just eating the whole thing. Right? Yeah. Like stuff. Well, binge eating, yeah. yeah. And yeah, binge eating, exactly. And what I said was, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna stop like trying to like omit all these foods out of my diet, but if I do have them, I'm just gonna track them in my calories, protein, carbs, and fats and, and, and you know, just handle it that way. And what it did was one, I stopped binge eating. Like that yeah. helped me really stop binge eating and be more consistent because again, it's one of those things where I'm looking at it's consistent work over time. So I would rather be, you know, have, I always say, I'd rather have somebody who's 90%, 100% of the time than somebody who's 100%, 50, you know, 70% of the time and the other 30%, they're doing what the fuck ever, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, that perfectionist mentality can be, it can take you far, but it can also really, you know, perfection can be the enemy of progress. So I don't, I tell people this because I don't want to put it in their minds that if they have a slice of pizza, they have a pop tart, whatever else, you know, piece of cake mm-hmm. that they've just fucked everything and they might as well just eat the fucking house down because that tends to be what happens is if they have a little bit, they go off the deep end. Mm-hmm. Whereas I can say, Hey, listen, you're, you're whatever your, your, your cousin got married, whatever your, your wife wants you to go out for a night, whatever. Fine. You can do it. Just be reasonable, make reasonable choices track it in your calories, macros, and you'll be fine. Do I mm-hmm. think you should do that every day? Absolutely not. Okay. But I think it's important to have that tool in the toolbox. Otherwise you get people who literally go crazy. And I mean, you've seen guys who, you know, they'll eat clean all the way through a prep and then they gain 50 pounds the week after the show, right? That's, that's me, 100%. <laughs> I, I'm, the, I'm the all or nothing guy that you're always talking about. But I only am like that because I feel like there's a lot of things, maybe things I don't understand that – like when you have like that little piece of sugar and you're like, Oh, it's okay. You can have one chocolate bar. Don't eat 10. I'm like, I just spiked my insulin pretty hard. And I know maybe the blunted, maybe the blunted response is the same, but that, so spi- would- but that spike is going to make me want another chocolate bar. Like so when that, when that, when that crash comes, my body's going to be looking for more sugar. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and blow your mind here a little bit. Right. So <laughs> okay. pa- part of that is possibly the power of suggestion that that's been what you believe so if you believe it to be true, then it becomes true. Also, the fact that you have tried to limit yourself purposely from those foods means that when you introduce that and you believe that it's going to cause some kind of physiological problem, that you do have a harder time limiting it. That We call that a disinhibition reflex in the, in the, in the literature. Okay. Um, let me just, so when I say like placebo or the power of suggestion, people get really offended uh, because they think I'm saying that their experience isn't true. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. Okay. I do think that, you know, maybe you eat that and you do feel hungrier, but let me just give you a real quick, quick, hell, why can't I say this word? Real quick explanation of how powerful placebo is. So there was a recent study where they looked at, they looked at a bunch of stuff, but they basically identified people who genetically secreted more or less ghrelin. Are you guys okay. familiar with ghrelin? Yeah. yeah. It makes you hungry, right? Right. Right. Yeah. So you would, you would think that, that the, the people who secreted more ghrelin are going to be hungrier. People who secreted less ghrelin are going to be hu- less hungry, right? Okay. So they identified people on both sides and then they randomly told them what they were. Okay. So you had four different groups. You had low secretors of ghrelin who were told they were low, low secretors of ghrelin who were told they were high, high secretors of ghrelin who were told they were low, and high secretors of ghrelin who were told they were high. You know what they found? 
it almost didn't matter at all what their genetics were. It mattered what they told them. And not, not even so far as their perceived hunger. They saw people who had low ghrelin, who they told were high, their ghrelin levels actually physically went up. Oh, okay. And it's not like you're, you know, it's not like you can tell yourself, hey, make more ghrelin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is just by you believing that, might make it true. We used to think the brain, like the body was just a bag of meat and the brain, like, you know, if you, I know they're connected. I understand that. Yeah. 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 So, um, that's extremely powerful and something that's important to understand. So again, for you, I would say if that's your belief, then, Hey, there's nothing wrong with the way you're doing things. Okay. But wait a minute. So let's go back a bit. Chris, maybe you can, let me me summarize this. Let me summarize this. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. This is how I'm seeing it. All right. So when Lane suggested the studies, when the studies came out and the sugar doesn't impact, you know, your fat loss, depending on ranging the sugars. And then you talk about flexible dieting. Basically, flexible dieting is offering a, a phenomenon across the board people where your total average is better. If your total average is better, you're going to come out better on the other side, all right? Yeah, yeah. If, you also, if you also know in your mind that, oh, I can have a piece of my mom's blueberry pie and work that in, that your relationship with food is going to be at a healthier area. So one, you might even be less likely to binge, less likely to even eat off your plan if you know you can have that. Because I know for myself getting into dieting, I went in that binge eating cycle when I first started bodybuilding and had to be super strict and I fall off hard, super strict. And then eventually when I came to the terms with I just don't give a shit, then I almost, I didn't eat off my plan like a month. I don't even care. I don't even think about it. Because I know I can have it, I just figure out a way to work it in, have a balance. And the thing is this, like if you're a coach or you're trying to create a concept or a plan for somebody, you're trying to create a concept that is the most effective possible for the largest group of people. And unfortunately, the, your, your mind is really what controls a lot of that. So if you can have a plan that tricks your mind into staying on plan, having a better average, and not being controlled by food, you'll be a greater success at the end. So, if, so if God just said that so much better than I did, thank you. <laughs> so, Chris, if you're getting ready for a show or you're getting a contest ready for a pro show, is this is flexible dieting part of something you do? To a degree, yes. Well, explain that because I believe in it to a degree as well, but it depends okay. what the degree is. Okay, so like I tell people when, like, say for example, if person, this is me personally. So if I'm prepping, I look at food uh, similar to like a bank, like Lane said, and I'll look at the food as in its micronutrient density, um, obviously the calories I need, but I will always exchange a carb for a direct carb. Yeah, I believe in that too, though, but that's just saying like, I want potato instead of rice. I'm like, okay, that's no big deal, right? But you're not going to, but you're not going to eat, like, I'm not going to tell a client to eat half a cup of rice with the first five meals so he can have a piece of cake at the end of the night. No, because think about it. When you're in a diet, when you're in a prep and you're so caloric deficit, you know, you're, you're sweet too. You taste sugar. It's like crack. Yeah. So it's better to most people in that period of time when they're caloric deficit to not even taste it at that point. That's you know? kind of where I was going with it. Right. Yeah. I'd rather them have a slice of pizza than have cake because they taste that sugar and forget it. Okay. Wait a minute. So let's, let's stay with that. So if you, if your client says to you, you know what, you know what, Chris, I'm going to have, four ounces of protein with the first five meals instead of six. And I'm going to have half a cup of rice instead of a cup and a half with the first five meals. But for meal number six, I want four slices of pizza. 
or two slices of pizza? Are you going to be like, yeah, okay, you can switch that. That's fine. For preparation? Well, with Lane, would you do that in preparation? I wouldn't do it for preparation. Uh, I think it, it probably depends. If they're able to stick to that and do that consistently and they're, you know, dropping fine and they're not overeating. Boom. That's, sure. where, that's sure. where my problem is. But, Are you saying but, consistent every day? Or wait, a consistent, a minute. Uh, wait a minute. I, want, I, just, I just yeah, want to I mean, touch on. I'm kind of going with an extreme example. Uh, that, but, but, but no, but I'm not using extreme example because this is what people in the bodybuilding industry are doing yeah. with flexible dieting. And I'm not saying that's your fault. But that's what, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but that's what they've but that's what they've taken. Be sponsored by Pizza Hut. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's what they've taken from it. So okay, yeah. I just want to express what my problem with that is before, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong or right because I'm not saying I'm right. It's not that even though the fat the calories may be equal, and I haven't done the math, but let's assume the calories in my scenario are equal. Wouldn't you benefit much greater muscle wise from having? the rice in each of those meals and having more protein in each of those meals instead of saving it all and having two slices of pizza. Well, that's, but then that's not flexible dieting in terms of what I promoted because I've said you need to hit a certain amount of protein, right? Okay. So, okay. So no, I'm, but you still might, you still might hit the protein cause there's still protein in the slices of pizza. Yeah. I mean, but again, so if you're hitting, okay, so I'll answer. So if you're hitting the same protein, same yeah. calories, yeah. Uh, there's no evidence that it's going to be less anabolic. And in fact, I mean, if it's more insulinogenic, it might, I mean, you can make an argument that more insulinogenic could be more anabolic, but I don't, I don't believe that. Yeah. Um, so I would say you're not missing out on anything. Although what you're missing out on is satiety that you're just not going to feel satiated because a slice of pizza is so freaking dense. It's good, but it's so but dense. I, but I think what Chris and I are saying is, it's important to give people the tool to understand that they can do that without completely blowing their diet. We're not saying make it a habit, but you can do it without blowing your diet. So what you, so what you guys are saying is if five days out of the seven, I'm on like my proper six meals a day and two of those days I have an outing, I can kind of rearrange my calories a little bit and make up for that pizza. Is that what you're saying? that's that's one thing you can do let me give you an example so i i was going to debate a guy a while back um i can't remember his name so i won't throw one of the bus <laughs> uh but he was a he was a uh, a bodybuilder a little more bro um and he was going to debate you know clean eating versus flexible dieting with me and uh the first my first slide so i actually he posted his cheat meals every yeah. week yeah i went through and added up the calories on his cheat meals from junk food he was eating more junk food by a lot than me even so here's the problem when you restrict yourself and a lot of guys do this a lot of guys do this yeah, yeah. they have that one sheet day a week and they think okay well i'm eating clean whatever so what i'm what i'm kind of saying is like all right so you're you're saying that it's bad to have a piece of chocolate but if you binge on chocolate for a day that's fine okay right? wait wait but i'm that so, guy so i want to explain okay go ahead so what i what my my philosophy is like let's say i'm dieting for a show if I'm good Sunday all the way through Saturday until Saturday at like 10 o'clock and at 10 o'clock, I decide I'm going to eat a large pizza. Am I better or worse than the guy who had one slice every night? I would say if you end up having the same number of slices at the end of the week, it's the same damn thing. You it's, think so? What do you absolutely. think, Chris? Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would personally, like I said, I don't need evidence to support this, but like, 
I'd rather have one slice spread out. I, I, I honestly think people who overeat in one sitting, like legitimately binge eat, I don't think that's really good for your system. Yeah. Good for your body. I mean, it, it like, I don't, I don't know many people who binge and always tell me, boy, my digestion's perfect. Usually they're like, dude, my stomach's killing me. It's been like that for three days since I binged out on Saturday. Like yeah. it just reaches and you don't feel right. You know, like the next you don't feel good. I, I don't like when people binge. I'd rather have it like, Hey man, like go out, eat normal, be full, but don't be in the fetal position of a four. But like when yeah. you, you know, um, I rather get people away from that. I like the idea and that feeling that rush get when they eat something. Okay. So I'm giving, obviously I'm giving like really far extremes on either side. So let's give some actual real information without me interrupting. So on a flexible diet, somebody's like six weeks out from a show. What would you tell them lane is your version of flexible dieting and where to fit stuff in? Like, let's say somebody's like, I want to have, let's just, you know what? You're my coach. Where, where do I get my cheat meals or cheat cheats or whatever you want to call them? So I don't really do cheat meals because of flexible dining. I just, you know, here's your macros, get this much fiber. I want you to get at least this much fiber, right? Because if you're on hundred grams of carbs and I'm telling you to get 20 grams of fiber, good luck getting some cheats, you know, cheats in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also don't like saying cheat food just because I just, it creates kind of this weird mental thing with people. What was that, Chris? It demonizes it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I've seen a lot of eating disorders come out of the industry and not just in women. I've seen it in men too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that's really counterproductive as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would, you know, I tell people kind of, Hey, that's, that's fine. Now what, here's one caveat. A lot of people try to kind of game the system and like, they'll eat a lot, like they'll start eating out more or they'll eat kind of a bunch of multi-ingredient foods. Here's the problem. There's, you know, error in food labels. And when you go out to eat, all bets are off. Like, yeah. I tell people, I like, you know, I don't want to say never go do it during a prep, but like you could say, Hey, I want a chicken breast, you know, broccoli, whatever, no oil. And I could just be out there throwing oil on it. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, that, yeah. so you have less control over it. Right. And by the same token, if you've got a cake, a cake has a lot of ingredients. So sure. It could be what it says the macros are, but it also could be a certain deviation from that. And if you're also not weighing out that slice of cake, right? And so people, this is what we're, people are piss poor at. Even dietitians are piss poor at this, is uh, estimating how much they ate without an actual food scale. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So you think, oh, I was a, I always tell people, I'm like, you don't want to be depressed. Go weigh out a, a serving of ice cream. You'll be depressed. You yeah. know? <laughs> like yeah. if you eat a bowl of ice cream, it's probably four or five servings. Yeah. Right? But a lot of people eat the bowl and they go, yeah, this is 170 calories on the side. Up, eh, 170 calories. I'll round up 200, you know? Yeah. In reality, they had 600, right? So I'll get people telling me, and I actually had, um, we have a new nutrition coaching app that's out right now. Um, and in our Facebook group, somebody was like, well, I, I just, I'm on 1,200 calories and I can't lose weight. And I'm like, okay. So are you telling me that you're on 1,200 calories and you are weighing out every single thing that goes in your mouth and you're not losing weight? And they're like, well... I have one flex day and I'm like, you're probably eating 3,500 to 4,000 calories on that flex day. Yeah. And, and you, but people don't realize this. They, they think, well, if I'm just, if I just hit it most days, nah, it's, it's like a budget. Like if you, if your goal is to save $2,000 a month and you want to save $24,000 in a year and you get to the end of the year, December 31st, and you go out and you spend, you know, $24,000, 
guess how much money you saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Not quite like that with metabolism, but it's still it's still a valid explanation. I, I hope, Chris, would you agree with me on that? Yeah, um, I mean, I don't allow people to eat out either unless it's something like, oh, the show got canceled four weeks later. All right, we'll have a burger. But I, I, I like, like you said, when someone refeeds for me in prep, I don't trust people. I don't trust what they're doing, one. And two, I like to know what they're doing. So if they're constantly rearranging everything and something at the end of the week doesn't look right, I'm like, all right, what are you doing? Yeah. So it, like if I give them a refeed or cheat, I will give them macros. They can do whatever they want. I have a guy in Germany with I'm doing that right now. He'd rather have it that way. So he goes, tell me the macros and I'll make whatever cheat I want. I'm like, that's fine. And then I know what he's doing. Yeah. Actually, that's interesting you said that. Because Lane, I had a friend who was using you as a coach. Um, isn't your diet set up that way? Like if I hired you tomorrow, wouldn't I just get a list of numbers? Or am I getting foods? Yeah, no, I, I just give a list of numbers. I, I give yeah. a sheet that says, hey, here are some you know, samples. Here's proteins. Yeah. Here's carbohydrate sources. Here's yeah. fat sources. But don't feel limited to this, you know, yeah. like that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I, think- just, I just don't, I don't like giving people set meal plans. Here's why I don't like meal plans. First off, I've had people's like, okay, I'll, I'll do the macros, but I want you to give me a meal plan. With almost out fail, I'll do the meal plan. They'll say, okay, but could I do this instead of this and this? And I'm like, well, why the fuck did you want a meal plan? Yeah. Like, if you want, if you, do you want me to tell you what to eat or not? You know? So I just, I actually stopped doing it because I'm like, you know, one, I think people learn a lot when they have to track their food and learn what's in food. Like the most I ever learned about nutrition, I have a high degree in nutrition. Most I ever learned was when I was 19 years old and people who bitch about tracking food right now, like just shut the fuck up. You got like, it's easy now. Yeah. Yeah. Do this for you with barcode scanners and shit. Our, our app has a barcode scanner. Yeah. Um, I had to take a book of food counts that thick, take it to the grocery store and just start going down. Oh, does this have protein? Nope. Okay. You know, keep going the next thing. Cause I knew fucking nothing. But after, yeah. you know, a few weeks of doing that, you're like, okay, well, this is a protein source. This is a carb source. This is a fat source. This has all three. This has two, you know, like you just learn so much of that process. And I don't want my clients to not have that process because I also look at it. Like if I give you a meal plan, that's, you know, what I say, give a man a fish he eats for a day, teach a man a fish he eats for a lifetime. And I think that even for bodybuilders, there's a lot of bodybuilders who don't understand, you know, they say, well, I switched to fish from steak and I, I, my skin thinned out. Well, you cut 90 grams of fat out of your diet because you went from a source that has 20 grams of fat <laughs> to, um, to two grams of fat per meal. Yeah. So is it, safe, is it safe to say that, because I could totally get on board with this. Is it safe to say that your flexible dieting is, since you're giving somebody numbers, right? You're getting ready for a show. Is it safe to say that you, within your flexible dieting plan, you prefer single ingredient foods? For sure. Okay. For Cause sure. I'm 100% on board with that. Yeah, for sure. Because yeah. it's, 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 it's kind of about one with single ingredient foods, you have uh, less variability. So that's yeah. one thing. Yeah. And the other thing is like, we, I honestly don't trust a lot of diet foods out there. A lot of the low yeah. calorie foods, I don't trust them. Yeah. We, we, my wife just got um, some some cookies from a very a brownie, a protein brownie, and I think I would like to call her right now and like have a can I have a call in. I, I, I might butcher it, but basically, it was supposed to be something like, you know, like twenty grams of protein, like twenty grams of carbs, and like five grams of fat. And it tested, it tested, 
at 20 grams of fat, 50 grams of carbs, and three grams of protein. And these people are selling it as a protein brownie. Yeah, right? yeah. That's a fat so, brownie. Exactly. So yeah. I tell people, I'm like, listen, I'm, you know, you can, you can have what you want, but if we get to the point where you're starting to have trouble dropping weight and I find out you're on all these, then I'm saying, okay, let's, let's put that aside for now. Let's switch you over to some, some more basics. Yeah. And if you're not, you know, then if you're not losing weight on 1500 calories, then we'll get worried. You know what I mean? Okay. But so, it's probably more the other thing. So there is a point though, where you might reach, because I always, even with the flexible dieting with single, single ingredients, I'm a hundred percent on board with that. Like John's basically got me doing that. If I want to eat oatmeal instead of cream or rice or whatever, like we're cool, like switching things around. Right. But we do get to a point where we need to know exactly what we're eating at what time and how it's going throughout the week. So we can make small changes that usually isn't until the last, you know, two or three weeks before the show. So we can get a really good idea of how, what the body's doing. So it's very, very specific. It's not for, I think when it comes to peaking, there's advantages to being on very, you know, too much flexibility is a bad thing and too much rigidity is a bad thing. Okay. okay. So I think there's a sweet spot in there. But isn't, um, but isn't, but sorry to interrupt you, but is it more rigidity? Like when I'm very rigid, like the last four weeks, I wake up every morning, my weight's exactly the same. My skin looks the same. My body looks the same. So you know what I mean? This is a great point. So yes, as you're getting closer to the show, tighten the bolts down because yeah. You know, if you're fluctuating sodium every day, if you're fluctuating, if you're eating a bunch of different things every day, every different day, I mean, it, it changes your look consistently. Whereas if you're eating very similar things, your digestion is going to be very similar. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be kind of be, I hate this word, but I'm going to use it anywhere, a rhythm, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and that can be useful because then you can know, you know, if you're seeing changes, it's actually due to something rather than, well, you just ate something that had 2,000 more milligrams of sodium than you're used to having and you just, yeah. you know, a little bit watery the next day. Yeah. So, yes, I, you know, absolutely. There's definitely utility in that, right? Okay. But, again, it's all, it depends on the individual as well because I've had some people, if I, you know, and I got to, this is more for gin pop clients, but even some competitors too. Like if I try to get them on a strict meal plan, they'll just, boom, one week and they're yeah. binging. You know well, let I mean? me Well, let me just clarify even for myself. Like, for general population that want to eat clean or I know you don't like the term eat clean, but lose weight or be on a better eating plan. I 100% agree with the flexible dieting model. It's just for me, when it comes to getting a client ready for a show, it's mostly like we're talking about the last four to six weeks. I want to know exactly what is going on every day. Chris, are you like that with your clients? Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. I think like, I mean, the reason I see making things more rigid towards the end of a contest prep and making things as consistent as possible, it's less error on my part to read the pictures incorrectly. Right. Yeah. You know, like if things start to change or go weird and like, I don't know, he's changing condiments in and out or God knows what drinking bottles of Walden farms, like at least, I, at least I could say like, all right, this is what we've been doing. All right. I need to change this. I don't like when variables are all over the place. Yeah. And as you get closer, then even more consistent. And what brings you back to the point where we're all just talking about, usually when I start someone to contest prep diet, say if they just came to never working before and I give them their plan at 14 weeks out and they look at me and they go, Oh, I'm allowed to have all these different types of food. Mm. Well, well, yeah. Like oh, I thought I must, I'm like, listen, stop. If it's not working, then we're going to pull some things. 
if it's consistently working, we will ride it all the way through. Because people have this belief that you can't use fruit in a contest prep diet. I can't stand that. Mm. I have a question about that. Actually, you said that because I was, ta- I had um, Patrick tour on the show. I'm not sure if you, Lane, you know who that is, but he was a, he's a pro bodybuilder now turned coach. He's very successful with all his clients. He doesn't really believe in doing the fruit thing because he says fruit is stored in the liver and not in the glycogen, like in the muscle. So can you guys explain to me the diff? Well, I know what the difference is, but why, why is he so against it and you guys are for it? And if it only stores in the liver, then why do we need it? Well, other than the micronutrients. Right. Lane's going to have more answers better than I can. But my thought process in the whole situation is it's not like I'm consuming 90% of my carb intake from fruit. Not even 50%. All right? It might be 10 or 20%. Maybe mm-hmm. some berries here there to add some more micronutrients. So it's not a significant amount to make a shit of difference, in my opinion. And if it did make a difference, I don't know how you'd ever even see that or even study that to make it to see a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and two... I think, in my opinion, like if someone's eating 400 grams of carbs, it's all white rice. That's all like basically nutrient denseless crap. Energy, rather than have some sort of micronutrients involved in there as well. Um, I did learn that fructose can only be brought into the liver, and then it does not get stores glycogen as efficiently as glucose. Which, Lane, you correct me if I'm wrong. But at the end of the day, if there's a huge deficit, your liver can take those and then do these enzymatic reactions and turn to glucose. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're in a severe deficit or contest prep, it's all going to end up in the same place anyway. Okay. Why is it just take longer? Is that why, Lane? So, this is – so, I, I come from a biochemistry background, and I find that people – this is kind of like you can have the 10,000-foot – view of the forest or you can have the microscope down here looking at stuff right so yeah. saying not to eat fruit because fructose is stored in the liver and not in the muscle that's taking the microscope looking down here right yeah, and you're missing yeah. you're missing the forest of the trees so um first off <laughs> a very interesting study uh two of my colleagues did who were in the lab that i was in bef- before i got there their names were josh and tracy anthony both uh contributed a ton to the protein uh, literature research and josh was actually a very successful powerlifter as well um, they actually looked at glycogen resynthesis after exercise using uh, either glucose only or sucrose, which is 50% glucose, 50% fructose. Yeah. Guess which one uh, refilled muscle glycogen a little bit faster? Well, the, the, the mix. The mix. The mix. Yeah. So the, 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 their, their hypothesis was that since if you give pure glucose, you know, I don't know if this is right, this is just their hypothesis. The liver is going to get first pass at everything. So that liver is going to start picking off some of that glucose, right? Whereas if you give glucose and fructose, now the liver will preferentially take the fructose, leave the glucose alone for, you know, the muscle. Now, it wasn't a big difference, right? So let's, yeah. not, let's not get yeah. really hung up about it. Uh, I'm not going to tell everybody go have sucrose after the workouts, right? <laughs> um, but as far as Chris is absolutely right, yes, you will store fructose in the liver as glycogen. However, that is not isolated from the rest of metabolism. So your liver is kind of like your master control of metabolism. And if you were in a deficit, uh, that means you're going to have more stuff going into the bloodstream than is going into adipose. So the liver is going to start as the muscle is depleted of glycogen or low in glycogen. Uh, and there's a demand placed on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, there's a, a principle called, um, I'm, I'm really oversimplifying it, but it's called the Chatelier's principle, 
Whereas if you start, if you have a system in equilibrium, kind of A, B, and C, and you start removing C, then B is going to start coming this way and A is going to start oh, coming this way. I see. I so, see. so what's happening is if you're depleting muscle glycogen from training and deficit and whatnot, and I shouldn't say depleting, but if you're lowering muscle glycogen, um, that means you're going to have a insulin sensitive muscle that is going to want glucose. It's going to, you know, be, be, there's going to have a nutrient partitioning effect where it's going to be pulling glucose mm -hmm. and the liver is more likely to give up its glucose. And the other thing that Chris made a, a great point about is that it, you're not, you're not eating like all carbs from fruit. Right. Yeah. And it's not like, so you can have a store about a hundred grams of, of, of glycogen and liver, but it's not like that's just, okay. Put that in there, stays there all day. Like that gets turned over. Right. Mm -hmm. So even if you were having like quite a bit of fructose, unless you were just having that, like a ton of fruit at one time, which yeah. I don't know anybody that does that. It wouldn't right? be. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind is fruit is not 100% fructose, right? Yeah. Most fruits, even the most dense source of fructose from fruit is like 50, 50. Okay. You know, if you're looking at something like a banana, I mean, if you had three bananas, you might get 30 grams of fructose. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, so actually, not, I actually know that. Yeah. So it's, it's, if we take an extreme example, I mean, it's, it's not talking about glycogen, but they actually did a study recently where they took people and they force fed them 150 grams of pure fructose on top of their normal diet. You know what happened? Mm. It actually, they actually self-regulated and ate less throughout the rest of the day because they were just, they, they had all the sugar. Yeah. Yeah. From all that fructose. Right. Yeah. And they didn't see any differences in like, so they compared that to a control group. Didn't see any differences in fat loss, uh, triglycerides in liver, all that kind of stuff. So again, it's like when you equate calories, you just don't see big differences. So I would, I would never want to tell somebody, hey, like if somebody was eating their all, all their carbs, or like all their carbs are from fruit, I might be like, all right, well, you know, diversify a little bit. But I would never tell somebody don't eat fruit because, you know, you store, you'll only get that, that fructose going to uh, liver glycogen. That's yeah. just a little bit of a kind of a linear simplification of how metabolism actually works. So all of this is based on deficit. Now, if I'm in a surplus, which I probably wouldn't care anyway, because I'm in the off season. So I'm going to eat as much fruit as I want. But if I'm in a surplus, then what happens? Is my body still using it the same way? Or is it probably staying in the liver? Or how does that work? Does it matter? Does it make a difference? Well, you're not as concerned about it because your muscle, muscle glycogen is full anyway. Yeah, so it doesn't matter. So, you know, don't even worry about it. Now, now you could say, well, now you're going to have more of it being converted to fat and liver. Yeah, but that's only going to happen if you're in a, in a surplus. And, mm. you know, there's no evidence that it's going to be more lipogenic than a comparable calorie amount of another carbohydrate. So, and plus, fruit is very satiating, has fiber, a bunch of other micronutrients. There's a lot of good stuff in fruit. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of fruit, especially for satiety. Uh, I think it can be more satiating than even like, uh, you know, rice and oatmeal and that kind of stuff because it takes yeah. longer to eat, has a better water content, more, more fiber in some cases. I found watermelons good for that because it's, it's a very low calorie fruit, very but, low it, calorie. but it's very satiating. And berries too, like strawberries. Strawberries, man. yeah. You have like a whole pound of strawberries and it's like 15, 20 grams of carbs. Yeah. <laughs> So are we, so are we saying like, if you're in a diet and you're like, Oh, I can't have an apple. You're probably overreacting. Yeah. That would be yeah. A, a, a gross overreaction. To the <laughs> Lane, what about that study years ago? I think it was the cyclists and they're talking about uh, intra workout carbohydrate supplementation, maintaining peak performance and like Olympic cyclists. 
and they figure out the max amount of dextrose or glucose somebody can uptake per minute, right, for 60 minutes, 90 minutes. And the group that had the mix of glucose and fructose was able to absorb more calories than just the glucose group. Yeah, that's another good point. Yeah, Right, and they were suggesting that, like, there's a different pathway, one, yeah. um, that the body can absorb fructose and uses energy and glucose. So, like, fructose is very demonized. And yeah. what I understand is people are so quick to eat a muffin and drink a Coke, but they're like, I don't, can't eat pineapple. Because a muffin's, because a muffin's just glucose. It's not. There's it's no got sugar in it. Sugar has fructose. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The first, time, the first time I ever heard this was when fighters, uh, there's, a, there's a popular UFC coach, UFC fighter coach, that uses this to rehydrate and reload his fighters after making weight. And he says he has to have fruit. He puts fruit in each of their meal because he said the uptake is stronger. So that's the first time I've ever heard that. And now obviously you guys are confirming it. So, Because there's two different transporters in the intestine. So there's, you've got your glucose transporter and you've got your fructose transporter. Mm -hmm. So you can only stuff, you know, the idea is you, it's a gate, you know, gate. So you can only stuff so much glucose in, but you could be getting glucose and fructose. The only I see. thing you got to be careful is just that well, we're getting off topic, but the, the, you got to be careful of the solute, the concentrations, especially when you're dealing with endurance athletes because mm -hmm. they can have some GI upset. That's, yeah. that's what the primary concern is. Um, I don't want to keep you guys too much longer. It's been a couple hours, but I have a, one more big question and then a couple quick ones. Lane, you mentioned um, – well, you didn't say plateau, but we were kind of talking about plateaus earlier when we were talking about surplus calories and all that. People message me all day long. And they're like, I'm stuck at this weight. I'm eating this much food or I'm stuck at this weight. I'm dieting. Let's, I want to go into the bulking area first because I feel like dieting's easier to figure out. I feel like guys are having trouble putting on muscle because they don't know how to get that, keep that weight moving. Mm -hmm. So when, when you have somebody set at 3,000, 4,000 calories, whatever it might be, and their weight is stuck somewhere, do you just keep feeding them or what do we do? What do we, what do guys do? Do we have to go into a cut and then back into a surplus or like, how does it work? So the, there's a couple of different tools. One, a cut can be useful. Like I've, I, again, this can be very bro sciencey, but I've, I've had times where I've like, I know when I feel like I've come to the end of a usefulness of a gaining phase, if that makes sense. Mm. And it's time to do at least a yeah. short cut yeah. to reset. I hate that nebulous term, but like one, it'll, you know, a couple weeks in the deficit, I'll get, you know, my appetite back a little bit, you know, that sort of thing. I'll get rid of some of the unnecessary fat I put on. So that definitely can be a tool. I like, you know, like two to four week mini cuts. I like those. Really? That long? Uh, it just depends. Just so depends. if somebody, but if somebody has like, and maybe this, maybe again, and this might be for people on PEDs only, but if somebody has like an eight month off season, say, right? In that case, a, I'm going to be doing a four month cut. Yeah. Or, or a four, four, four week. Yeah, it'd, be, yeah. it'd be more like one or two weeks. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, Sorry. I just wanted um, to clarify. Then the other option is, you know, uh, reducing activity. The, the only the only caveat to that is if you reduce their activity and it reduces their appetite, that can be a problem. Um, but some people have the opposite effect. If they become less active, they're actually more hungry. Okay. Um, some people do have that effect. So you can reduce activity uh, or you can start getting in more calorie-dense sources of food. So whether it's liquid meals, um, you know, and this is again where flexible dieting can be helpful because it's like I had I had one client in particular he just had super high energy expenditure. He was 170 pounds and he was eating uh, 5,000 calories a day and was having trouble putting on weight. Yeah. And, I was, and he was like, please don't add any food. I, am, I feel so, like, I feel like I'm going to explode. I feel so yeah. bloated all the time. Well, I asked him what he was eating and he's basically eating just chicken breasts, 
broccoli, rice, and oatmeal. I'm like, no wonder, dude. You're having like 150, wow. grams, 150 grams of fiber a day. Like you're literally full of shit. Like you're, you're backed up to your esophagus with shit. You know, so I'm like, do me a favor. Eat some pizza. Eat some Pop-Tarts. Hit your macros. Hit your macros. And let me know, and, you know, see if that helps a little bit. And he came back and he was like, oh, my God, I feel so much better. So again, that's like, you know, I don't like poo-pooing stuff because everything's tools in a toolbox. I would not tell my obese 50-year-old woman, hey, go have some Pop-Tarts and some pizza. But for this guy, it was a great tool. And after that, he was able to start putting on some weight and whatnot, you know, and still getting in a healthy amount of fiber and all those other things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay. So those are, Chris, your guys, you kind of feel the same way about when you guys get stuck or do you just keep feeding them more and more food till they keep growing? Like, what is this? You know, it's funny that that concept used to, used to be something that I would hold true like, you know, 10 years ago, but I know that in my personal experience and other clients experience, the second their appetite runs out, what usually happens is they start to have poor pumps Then they can't sleep. Then their ability to eat starts to decrease. They feel like shit and they're tired and then it's a clusterfuck. So I do implement short diet phases, never two to four weeks, I'll usually will start with like three days and yeah. directly in half or three days. Yeah. Their appetite back. But I've been in situations where say they're eating 5,000 calories a day and they lose their appetite and they feel like they feel horrible. They're tired. I can't eat anymore. I cut them down to like 4,500, 4,200 and they start gaining weight. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't know if they really were not eating what they're supposed to. And all of a sudden they, I lower it to the part where mentally they could handle it. But there's been situations like that. And I tell them, don't get too hung up on just on numbers. It's more or less the effect on how your body's progressing or how it's going to change. But I, I don't believe that just feeding, feeding, feeding. I think this whole concept of being like, let's use peptides to increase my appetite. Let's smoke weed at night to increase my appetite. Let's do this. I, I, instead of having that, I can eat all this all day long. I mean, people start eating out more. This is another thing too. People will start eating out more to try to get more calories in because they're losing their appetite. And that always ends up backfiring. I've done that. And it's then they lose their appetite even worse. Yeah, it does. And the next day, they're not going to want to eat jazz and white rice chicken, you know? Yeah, I talk to guys all the time. And I've, and I've been there where they're like, I can't eat anymore. So they start eating more junk food. Like yeah. they'll, they'll, they'll get burgers every night. Because you, you can always eat a burger. Or you can always eat like a huge bowl of pasta with meat sauce or whatever. So you start eating food that's not really on your plan. And it just kind of starts to make you fatter. And your appetite gets worse. Your digestion gets worse. And uh, you're just trying to keep crushing more food. It doesn't work. The term I like to use that you guys are talking about is saturation. Yeah. I feel like after a few months of eating like a ton of calories, I get saturated. I don't really have any more room for glycogen or anything. I'm just kind of like, okay, I need to back off. And I think um, it's a good point on both your ends. Well, the tactic I use, um, I guess it's all the same concept we're doing, but carb cycling in the off season, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you have your baseline calories, then you have a high day. And then over time, you start building more high days. High calories might be anywhere from three to 500 calories more above their baseline. And then adjusting the high and low days accordingly. Eventually, you get to a point where that doesn't work. Then you, the high days become low days, and the new high day becomes even a greater, greater a surplus. Yeah. Um, okay. A couple quick ones because it's been two hours. Uh, I thought fish thinned out my skin and you already touched on it. Fish does not <laughs> white fish does not thin out my skin. And I know it doesn't actually thin the skin, but you got to admit if I, like, I feel like, okay, so Turkey's really low fat white meat. Right. But even when I switch from Turkey to fish and I always attribute it almost to digestion, is it 
Tell me if this is true. Tell me if this is true or this sounds like complete bro science to you. The hungrier I am, the more fat I'm burning. Um, that's <laughs> it. In some cases, it can be true. But I, so I'll tell you this: I took a six-month uh, module on appetite and hunger and hormonal rev- regulation, and the neurotransmitters are all involved with that. It's fucking complex. Okay. So it it's it would be kind of like saying I'm going to eat more cholesterol to make my testosterone go up. Right. Okay. There are a lot of steps between cholesterol and testosterone. Yeah. Just yeah. eating yeah. more is not going to make that change. Well, so the- I would say that if you're hungrier, yes, it could be because you're losing some body fat, but it also could be because of a thousand other things as well. Yeah. Well, the reason I said it is because turkey is more satiating than white fish. And when I eat, if I'm dieting, if I'm eating, like, let's say I eat, you know, uh, asparagus, rice, and white fish versus asparagus, fish, or asparagus, rice, and turkey. When I eat the white fish, I'm hungry 20 minutes later. Like I'm, you know what I mean? So I feel like, and this, like I said, again, I know this is total bro science, but I feel like now I'm hungry for an hour and a half instead of an hour. Mm-hmm. I'm burning more fat in that time. That's kind of how the bro science part works. You're so, right. I think you're just correlating it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, but I mean, this could be bro science too, but fish has a very low insulin index. Right. Okay. Like the ability for protein to rise of, you know, uh, insulin in the blood and like that, I mean, I would assume that would have to have something to do with it besides it being extremely low calories because the same way with me, if I eat fish, I tend to get a little flat pretty quick, yeah. but I also lose a sense amount of body fat a little faster and I do get more hungry. Um, but satiated rating is, is a whole nother thing in its, you know, itself. So can it be lane that, can it be, it's not just calories. Can there be other things at play that are going to help you burn more fat? Uh, sure. Um, but I think calories are, well, burn more fat. Is, let me think about how I, want to I know it's probably not the term you want. No, I no, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Um, yeah. So I think calories are the main thing um, or in terms of your energy deficit, right? Yeah. But then protein matters, fiber matters, um, your train. So here's the thing. We get so hung up on nutrition, us bodybuilders. Like everyone's like, your training is so, if I, if I could go back, I would tell myself, and I, this is a guy with a PhD in nutrition, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wish nutrition was, was more important. So many guys train like bitches and, and worry about their nutrition so much. It's like, dude, go get a proper periodized program and learn how to actually stimulate some fiber. Because you know what the most powerful nutrient partitioner you have? Your mm-hmm. training. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, other things can matter as well. It's just that, that energy deficit in terms of getting shredded uh, and then protein for retaining muscle, those are the most important things. Um, okay, now- and again, individual differences, um, yeah. and there can, be, there can be things. And, again, the power of suggestion. Like, yeah. if, you, if you like that white fish and you like the way it makes you feel and the fact that you're hungry a little bit later, uh, that's fine. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. I would, yeah. you know, if somebody wants to do it that way, I would say – I would just look at it like, okay, is this going to be worse than, for example, if I if you're eating turkey? No. Yeah. So yeah. if you like it better, then fuck yeah. But as far as the science goes, you're telling me like, there's not really a difference. It's more of a calorie. Nothing thing. we've nothing we've identified. Okay. Right. So I'm I'm I. Okay. So I like to give my my real short answer to that. So we haven't identified anything yet. I don't think we will. Right. Okay. So I don't think that there's going to be a difference. Okay. But. 
there could be, but there also could be a teacup orbiting Saturn, and I can't prove that there's not a teacup orbiting Saturn, but I don't think there is. <laughs> All right, I'll take your word for it. I'm listen. I'm not. I'm, I'm not here to tell you I'm right. I'm here to learn from you guys, so it's cool. Um, okay, morning cardio. I know a lot of scientists are like. I don't want to say just scientists, some new coaches or whatever. Everybody is kind of on this thing now where morning cardio doesn't do shit. It's not any different than late night cardio. Well, this is what they say. It's not any different than late night cardio or middle of the day cardio or anything. I personally feel like anecdotally, anecdotally, it's always worked better for me. And I've tried both ways and I've always felt like I got leaner, faster doing morning cardio. So I, I, based on some other things you told me, this kind of fits in terms of, like you like feeling hungry, empty in your GI, yeah. that, that you perceive that as a positive thing, right? Yeah. So that could be just in line with that, right? Okay. That's psychologically. Yeah. That's fair, yeah. Um, as far as if we look at the studies, the studies are pretty clear. We don't see a difference in fat loss. Now, that being said, I have no issues with someone who's to do fasting. Some people take it too far and they're like, oh, it's catabolic. You're going to lose all your muscle. Do I think it, do I think it could be a small, like, I do think it's kind of funny that bodybuilders like gotta eat every two hours and get protein in uh, unless it's first thing in the morning after oh, you I, haven't eaten for eight fucking hours. And then I, gotta, <laughs> I gotta defend myself a little bit. I always drink my aminos with my okay. cardio. So I'm getting okay. something in before, but okay. I get my, I get my essentials in before so I drink. It's not fast. It's not 100%. <laughs> <fast>. <laughs> no, it's no, not. I, I, so I think that for a lot of people, um, so one, cardio has a negative interference with strength training. And if you do, if you probably experience, if you do too much cardio, your weightlifting starts to suffer, right? Yeah. And that's our most powerful tool for body composition, everything. So we don't want it to impact. So they've found that if you separate them, the further you can separate them time-wise, the better. So it makes sense if you're going to train in the afternoon, do your cardio in the morning or vice versa, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I would not recommend you know, going doing an hour of cardio before you're going to go to legs. I don't think yeah, that's of course. Idea, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that there's that. There's also a lot of people who, for their schedule, you know, they can't, they just can't get up and do cardio. You know, I'll do it at noon, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people have jobs, um, or a lot of people just prefer to get up and get it out of the way. Yeah, yeah. All totally fine reasons to do it, and it's not worse than fed cardio. But if you're like me and you just fucking hate doing fasted cardio, yeah, then you can do fed cardio. Now, okay. what people will cite is the studies that show that you burn a greater percentage of the calories from fat during fasted cardio than you do fed cardio. That is true, but we don't see differences in fat and actual body fat loss. And some people may say, well, that seems weird. Well, the reason is likely that if you're burning, so if you're fasted, you haven't eaten and you go out and do an hour or two hours cardio, whatever. Well, then you actually effectively shortened your feeding window already. That means you're going to have to put more calories in, compared to somebody who ate before. Does that make sense? No. So, okay. Still, so putting that, in the same, still putting in the same amount of calories though. Right, right. Yeah. So let's say, so you have, instead of having 16 hours to eat, let's say you go out and do two hours of fasting cardio. I'm just taking that for an example. Okay. Instead of having 16 hours to eat now, now you have 14 hours to eat. Yeah. Right? Okay. So you're actually getting in more calories over that back-end period of time. Agreed? Yeah. That you haven't eaten before where the other, where the other person would have eaten before. Yeah. So yes, you're burning less fat during the fed cardio, but you're going to burn more fat throughout the rest of the day because you're eating less calories throughout the rest of the day. But I, Whereas on fasted cardio, 
you're burning more fat during that period of time, less fat throughout the rest of the day because you have to eat more after that. But the day as a whole, you're eating the same amount of calories. Right, right. But I'm saying, so the studies that people will cite to support uh, fasted cardio are acute studies looking at what they're burning during the exercise. Yeah, I get it. Right. Yeah. So you have to look at it for 24 hours. And like you said, when you equate calories, you look at it for 24 hours, there's no difference in body fat loss because if you do fasted cardio, you'll actually end up burning less fat the rest of the day after the cardio than somebody who did fed cardio. Is that true, Chris? Well, like the studies that I'm aware of, um, I can't, I, I don't have a memory to remember to cite them. Um, basically, like what Lane said, there's no difference in total weight loss compared to both groups. But the people who did cardio in the morning obviously burned a higher percent of body fat, I mean, percent of fatty acids is energy, and they reported feeling better through the day than the group that did cardio post. And like the, the theory of the study was, the people who were doing cardio after were mostly metabolizing glucose, which triggered their normal glycemic response to food through the day. And then the group that had the cardio fasting, since their body got into burning more fatty acids energy, they had a more positive effect of glycemic control where their body's blood sugar was more stable through the day and they felt better. That's the only thing that was reported in that particular study that I read. But I mean, personally, I don't, I, I do fasting cardio and I feel fine. Um, unless it's unless I'm ruining my own sleep to get fasting cardio and then I feel like a bag of shit. So there's like, if I'm going to get up an hour early and lose an hour of sleep just to get fasting cardio in now, in my opinion, I'm defeating the purpose because now I'm really tired. I'm going to move less of the entire day. Okay. <laughs> and let me, uh, let me try that. Um, let me try my explanation one more time. Cause I think okay. I can make it, I'll do a little more extreme explanation sure. just to, to make it make sense. Yeah. Okay. So let's just say, no cardio, just fast. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because you burn more uh, fat when you fast, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's say you ate all of your calories in a single meal, right? Yeah. So you're fasting for 23 hours out of the day and you just have 3000 calories at that one meal, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas you have somebody who distributes it over five meals throughout the course of the day. They don't, they don't fast for any real portion of the day. Right? Yeah. So, what somebody could claim is, well, that fasting is going to be better because look how long you're burning fat, right? Uh, whereas at each other, this other person eating five meals a day, six meals a day, they're having less time where they're burning fat. Yeah. Okay. But then that person also has to, that other person has to eat a massive meal where they're going to store a lot of fat in that post-absorptive period because of all the calories. Yeah. Um, whereas the other person... They're not burning as much fat for as long, but they're also not storing as much fat in each meal. I got you. Right? I got you. So your fat fat loss is the balance between stored fat and how much you and how much fat you burn. So people only think about the burning part; they don't think about the stored part. Does that make okay. sense? It makes sense. So this is what I've said over time. I used to be the guy who was like, "Nope, I 100% know morning morning cardio is better." And then, obviously, as I've grown up, I've learned to keep an open mind. So. I don't think it's better as far as burning fat, but I do agree with the things Chris said about feeling better throughout the day and just having a little, feeling a little more stable throughout the day. So that's, again, no again, it's a feeling, right? It's not a, sure, but that's, yeah. that's totally yeah. valid. Right. So yeah. I just don't, I just, again, don't want people to do mental gymnastics about why their form yeah. of cardio is better. Like yeah. I look at that data and what I say to my clients is, Hey, 
do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. Right. Whatever, yeah. whatever works for you. Yeah. Okay. Same thing with high intensity and steady state cardio. People was like, which one should I do? I'm like, I honestly rather have a blend of both, but sometimes in my opinion, some people do really well with steady state. Some people do really well with high intense. I have those ones that completely folds on high intense. It yeah. wipes me out and I can't do shit later for training. Yeah. Yeah. Better steady state. I have other people who like, dude, 25 minutes of hit. I'm ripping. I feel great. And they're great the whole day. And they're losing body fat. Um, so, I mean, it's so preference it, is underrated. So, yeah. okay. I know Lane, do you have time for one more question? I'm, I'm going to have to get you back on cause I got a million others, but do you have time for one more or do you got to go? Yeah, I, I got a hard stop in 12 minutes, but I can take one more. Okay. It shouldn't take 12 minutes. Might, it might, I don't know, but <laughs> it's a really important question to me because it, I've, I've heard it. I've heard this. People have asked me this a million times. Yeah. How important is nutrient timing? Is, is our bodybuilders doing the right thing by eating six times a day? Cause some people are like, Oh, well you can just, like you said, I can eat all that in one meal and still my body's going to store that those, those aminos and use them as needed. No. So, um, so when it comes to protein, so timing of carbohydrate and fat, let's, let's just get that one out of the way real quick. Yeah. If that has any level of importance, we haven't detected it in the research yet. Um, uh, in terms of having like, do you need a bunch of carbs pre-workout, post-workout? We just don't really see that. There might be, but we haven't detected it in the research yet. Okay. As far as protein goes, your body does not have a viable storage mechanism for protein. For carbs, you got glycogen. For fat, you have body fat. Protein, there's an amino acid pool, but it's very, very small and very transient. Okay. So if you, you cannot, and actually this is one of the studies I did for my PhD, you cannot... Uh, make up for low protein at one out, one time of the day by overeating at another time, because we know there's a threshold, a minimum threshold to stimulate anabolism. For most people, it's around you know 20 grams of protein to to get it started, uh, and it gets maxed out around 50 to 60 grams. But that depends on the source, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so if we know that, if you had like let's say somebody having 200 grams of protein a day, and they have uh, you know one meal of 50 grams and everything else, pretty much nothing. And then 150 grams at dinner, right? Well, they've only got two stimulations of muscle protein synthesis in that day. Whereas they could have had like four, right? They could yeah. have done four meals of 50 grams of protein a day. Yeah. So the question for me is, okay, we know about what maxes it out meal per meal. And obviously like lean body mass can change things and whatnot. So the question becomes, okay, well, how frequent can you stimulate the system? Right? So based on, the, the preponderance of evidence I've seen, what I recommend to people is um, if you're a bodybuilder, not just an average person, uh, I recommend, you know, trying to maximize that threshold uh, four to six times a day. Okay. I think, I think, you know, a, there's, there's, a, there's some evidence that if you do it too often, it actually is suboptimal that okay. you can actually cause kind of like anabolic, Resistance. I don't. I, don't, I was just gonna. I was gonna ask you that. Is blunting four times effect. better. Yeah, it's called a muscle full effect. We 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 call it the refractory effect in in, in my paper, but the term now they use is uh, the muscle full effect. So when someone um, says, so when someone says, I I'm eating eight times a day, now they're yeah. kind of gone overboard. Probably overkill. Yeah. It's okay. Probably overkill. Okay. Um, in the middle of the night and eating protein shakes and. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so that being said, like if you're sleeping for eight hours, that's you know that's a good period of time without protein 
what I tell people in terms of that, yes, it could be an opportunity for shake, but I think getting the full eight hours of sleep is much more important. Now, if you're somebody who wakes up naturally in the middle of the night, maybe you can have a protein shake next to your bed, slam it, go back to bed. If that doesn't keep you awake, yeah, that's fine. But I would never recommend somebody purposely wake up to eat in the middle of the yeah. night. Um, yeah, I agree. So um, I think sleep is way more important. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that being said, so I think protein distribution is important. Now, I don't want to oversell it either. Um, we did an experiment. Now, this was in rats, but it's later, it was later validated in humans as well. Uh, we did this for 11 weeks, which is about an eighth of a rat's lifespan. Um, and we fed like either uh, almost 70% of their protein at dinner or like one meal, we had three meals. One was 15%, 15%, and 70. And then another group where it was pretty much even. And at the end of that, you know, eighth of their lifespan, we saw the group was doing the even distribution had about 8% bigger calf muscles than okay. the other group. Okay. So that's not a huge difference when you consider the, the drastic difference in, in diet and protein distribution. Yeah. But again, if you are a top level bodybuilder and your goal is to be Mr. Olympia, then every single percentage matters. And I don't give a yeah. fuck if it's a quarter percent, it matters, right? Yeah. I was just going to say so, if it's 8% is a lot. In, right. in like, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean that's the difference between like not even being a pro and being a pro yeah, yeah, so, exactly <laughs> um so yes absolutely when it comes to those levels it, yeah. it matters and that's i always tell people like the you guys think that these like the difference between the guy who finishes 10th at the olympia and first is so infinitesimal you mm. you guys like you like it's a subjective sport so judges kind of know who's going to place where before they go in so they're kind of already biased towards it yeah yeah which is why you don't see a ton of turnover. You see some, yeah, um, but not in the real like top guys. Like it's hard to break into that top three. You got to be good consistently for a while, yeah. typically, to break into that. Ronnie Coleman was kind of a an exception, an anomaly. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, um, so you need to really get. You know, what I always tell people is like, yes, okay, we think the anabolic cap is you know whatever 40, 50 grams of protein. I'm not going to say don't eat sixty, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that's fine. It's yeah. not going to hurt you. So yeah. go for it. Right. Okay. Like I'd rather be on the safe side of, of being, you know, a little bit too high on protein. That's how I um, think of it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, but I, I do think that some people can, you know, you hear people like, Oh, I'm going to eat 600 grams of protein. And it's like, well, now you're robbing, you know, carbs and fats, your digestion is going to feel like shit. You know, your, your training's going to suffer. You're going to smell like ammonia all day, you know, like, so <laughs> there's, there's trade-offs to that. Uh, Chris, you find the same thing. Like, you're, I know you're probably the same way as me, right? You're pretty stable throughout the day with your protein yeah, amounts. In, in like the same way Lance said, the research I learned when I was in school, my internship and my master's and, uh, you know, my credits I have to get every year are consistent with consistent regular refeeds four to six times a day. And obviously, you know, six times a day, it's kind of like if you're eating 300 grams of protein for eating that four meals might not be the most ideal, but sure. it was yeah, four to six. I totally believe that. Um, okay, so Lane and Chris, you guys have been amazing. I have a million more questions, but like I said, it's been forever. So I appreciate you guys taking the time today. Uh, will you guys come back at some point and yeah, for sure answer sure. more answer more questions, answer yeah, more bro some more bro science questions. Perfect. Perfect. That's great. <laughs> I love a conversation like this. People think I'm just like this angry guy who screams on Twitter all day. I'm like, I'm actually like a pretty nice guy. If you, if you talk <laughs> no, to me nicely, you know? <laughs> no, I was, I honestly was really happy to have you on because I've been, you know, I've been 
bodybuilding since I was 20. It's been you know, 20 years and I've seen your stuff all along the way. And it's funny because when I was younger, I was definitely like a, a hard headed person. And I was like, Lane doesn't know what he's talking about. Lane's crazy. This guy's got all these crazy ideas. And as I've gotten older, obviously I'm more open-minded. So I was always wanted to get, get you on and have these discussions. So I was happy to have you on Chris. I'm happy to have you on as well to kind of like bridge the gap between bodybuilder and scientists. So thank you guys very much. Is there anything, uh, either one of you, Chris, if you want to go first, want to promote before we kind of head off or anybody you want to thank? Um, thank you guys for having me on. That's like good discussion. Lane was a pleasure. Um, I always watch your stuff and, uh, you know, going into a nutrition field and learning more and more, you start to realize how much you don't know. And then you want to know more and more about other things. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's been a pleasure learning stuff. Um, I would promote my business, but I'm full. I cannot possibly take on any more clients. You have a, you have a new app, don't you? I do. Yeah, I do. Okay. Yep. Total Nutrition. You can find that app um, on my website. Um, but I've been capped out. Last time I went on, I think I had a gazillion emails with gazillions of questions. And I couldn't keep up with it. And I still have a waiting list. But I, guys, I try to help everybody I can. But I can't take on too many people and then lose the quality of care, I so to speak, to my clients. So get on to, get on to uh, Chris's website and get on the waiting list, I guess. And Lane, do you have anything you want to plug before we head off? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so uh, for those who want to find me on BioLane on all social media, I try to be uh, really responsive, uh, talk, you know, answer as many messages as I can and whatnot. So, you know, hit me up. Tell me if you think I'm an idiot. That's fine. Um, I have a couple books um, for you bodybuilders out there. I have a book called The Complete Contest Prep Guide, which is basically – an evidence-based approach to contest preparation. Uh, and basically it can, if you can't afford a coach or you just want kind of to learn more about the process, uh, 320 pages, extremely comprehensive. Um, and uh, it's gotten some great reviews. So, and then if, if you're, if you're gen pop, uh, I have a book called fat loss forever, 400 page book or almost 400 pages of fat loss manifesto really going into the, not just the science of physiology of fat loss, but also, um, just the behaviors that are important for uh, inducing fat loss. And those are both of my store, biolanestore.com. Uh, we also have my wife and I and a friend of ours, a registered dietitian, Keith Crocker. We have developed a coaching, nutrition coaching app called Carbon Diet Coach, which is on iOS and Android. Uh, it's $10 a month or $9.99 a month. Um, and basically we developed, we wrote an algorithm um, that basically can do automated coaching. Basically, oh, wow. yeah, so it took us almost two years to develop this. That's um, interesting. Yeah, so basically you go in and you put your metrics in, whatever, you know, weight, body fat, whatever, your goals, a few different other questions, and it will generate, you know, customized nutrition recommendations based on those metrics. And you can also control the rate of weight loss or weight gain that you want. You yeah. have a maintenance setting, we have a reverse diet setting. And um, it will, but what's cool about it is it will then adjust based on how you respond, just like a coach would. So for example, okay. if you select fat loss and you're not losing fat fast enough, it'll adjust your calories to get you to the rate that you want. Um, wow. If you're losing too fast, it'll adjust them up to get you to the rate you want. We also work with all different diet preferences. We have ketogenic, we have plant-based, we have uh, like every different thing you can think of. And we also like, not only does it coach, it has a food tracker in the app itself. So wow. you can just do everything right there. We got a barcode scanner. Um, we got everything. We all, we have almost 10,000 members uh, right now. We've only been out for a month. So it's- See that, Chris? You need a robot version of yourself. 
<laughs> like Lane's got. I'll tell you what. I'm so bad at promotion. My wife's mentioned the app. I'm like, oh, straight. <laughs> I always forget all that stuff. It's That's a hard. learned skill, Chris. It's a learned skill. I think I'm probably a little bit older than you, but but having to learn how to do it a little bit longer. My wife's so good at like all that stuff. I'm like, I'm just here to answer emails. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Well, guys, it's been awesome. Thank you very much. And I uh, hope to do it again soon. Uh, I'll get this up as soon as I can. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you, right, guys. guys. Have Thank a good you night. Guys. Okay, bye-bye.